Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Pre-Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. Ah, just spent all day in the youthful company of our eternal smoky Russian goddess, a brain-chewing reason Ayn Rand, working on a three-countum, three-part series, The Truth About Ayn Rand, which I am pouring heart and soul into as um, somebody who was a um, knee-bending acolyte of um, Alicia Rosenbaum for many years and to still hold her in about the highest regard uh, of any thinkers that I've come across, um, with, I guess, the exception of the ancient Greeks who were busy inventing the things when they weren't enjoying the sight of young men throwing spears naked. Also a great name for a gay club. Anyway, hope you're doing well. FDRURL.com slash donate. Please, please don't make me do what everyone imagines I'm doing and beg. Uh, Come and help out the show. Um, This is how we grow. Um, one of the reasons we're able to come up with um, the volume of shows that we're able to come up with and the quality of shows that we're able to come up with is because of Mike and Dostoyanovich. And um, they selfishly um, wish food and shelter. How many times have I gone over what commitment means? Commitment means being exploited by bold people. But uh, nonetheless, (laughs) they are... uh, Selfishly requiring sustenance and shelter, uh, even even in the summer. Like, I can understand it in winter for a short amount of time in the summer, too. So if you would like to help it out, uh, help out, that would be great. FDRURL.com slash donate. Hugely, hugely uh, appreciated. So that having been said, Mikey Mike, who's on first? All right, up first is Chris D. And he wrote in and said, Could you provide me with some plausible scenarios for, one, the privatization of nuclear arms, and two, crime prevention organizations, particularly with regard to protection for those who cannot afford to pay? These are the answers that elude me when I imagine an anarchist society. All right. So everything else you got sorted out? Yeah, basically... Got it all. No, but those are. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. dude, dude, back off the mic a little bit. Sounds like oh, you're sorry. pulling a uh, a deep throat on it. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not. So I pulled it a little <laughs> away from my face. Is that better? Good, good. Okay, Linda. Sorry. I mean, go ahead. Um. um so everything so, else you got pretty much squared away, but nukes and crime prevention is that your thing? Uh, I wouldn't say I got it all squared away, but in my conversations with people over this subject, it tends to distill down to these kinds of issues of uh, what what do we do with the nuclear weapons and how are people going to have protection that can't afford uh, insurance or some kind of um, conflict resolution organization, the services of such. Okay, so why don't you play your average uh, neighborhood statist? And uh, I will play, say, me. Uh, okay. Okay, so Mr. Status, let's, let's talk about nuclear weapons at the moment. Do you feel that our current method of handling nuclear weapons is good? Um, well, we haven't had nuclear winter yet, so I guess it's, it's not bad. I, I, I don't know how it could be better, let's say that. You don't so so the way that that governments are handling nuclear weapons at the moment is in your mind as good as it could possibly be. It's as good as I can imagine it, knowing that it's not my specialty, my area of expertise. Well, so for instance, uh, an American bomb, uh, a nuclear bomb, actually fell, I think, Wisconsin or someplace like that in the fifties, and um, there were uh, five 
fuses. Uh, four of them failed. The last one actually didn't fail. Uh, so it was kind of blind luck that that nuclear bomb didn't go off in an American, not unpopulated state. Do you know what the la- nuclear launch codes were for quite some time in the United States? Uh, it's probably something dumb, like one, two, three, four. No, because that sequence is a bit tricky. It was zero, 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 zero. Uh-huh. In other words, if there's someone had just leaned on the key, then, uh, you know, bad stuff could have gone down. Do you know that there's a fair amount of nuclear warheads that um, appear to be just not, like nobody knows where they are kind of thing? And this is in particular um, in, in the former, former Soviet Union. I could, yeah, I could imagine that. Okay. So, I mean, I'm no nuclear expert, but I do, I, I can think of some ways in which things could have been improved. You know, for 20 years, the launch codes should not have been a whole bunch of zeros in a row. And so I could see ways in which nuclear weapons handling uh, and and safety and security and so on could have been improved. I don't think that we've not had nuclear winter because governments are really great at uh, handling nuclear weapons. I think we've not had it because anybody who tries to use a nuclear weapon um, will be almost certain to destroy their region in retaliation. It's the mutually assured destruction uh, doctrine. So from from that standpoint, again, it's we say, well, how would this be handled in a free society? We want to make sure that we don't imagine it's being handled really well at the moment, right? Um, North Carolina, thank you for North Carolina nuclear bomb drop. Uh, that was uh, where where it happened. Uh, but so I just wanted to point out, it's not like we're trying to improve from a score of A plus, right? It's not like what's beyond a hundred percent, or how would a free society do just as well as a uh, government society, right? Yeah, I see that. Sure. Um, I guess maybe as a statist, uh, I see more accountability, uh, even if there are people that are behind the scenes that maybe the people responsible for launching a nuclear weapon won't be punished, but somebody will be punished for uh, the U.S. or some government launching a nuclear warhead on someone else. Whereas no, 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 no. Okay. First of all, all people right. have not been punished for launching nuclear warheads on someone else. In fact, they're generally considered to be uh, heroes, right? You may have heard of a little airplane called the Enola Gay. Does that ring a bell for you at all? Uh, I can only imagine that's what dropped the bomb on Japan. Well, but two, no, I, in fact. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. so two bombs were dropped uh, on Japan for no military purpose whatsoever. The Japanese government at the end of the Second World War, had already offered unconditional surrender to the United States. The only thing that they requested was that the emperor be allowed to stay on the throne. And the United States said no and dropped bombs before any further negotiations could have occurred. As you may have noticed from the Japanese tabloids, there's still an emperor on the throne. So there was zero utility whatsoever from a uh, military or negotiation or diplomatic or war-ending standpoint. There was zero point to dropping the nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. So there has been no punishment for 
a no military purpose launch on a purely civilian set of cities, um, thus, of course, irradiating and destroying the genetic integrity of the population fairly significantly. Uh, so, no, uh, there's not only no negative consequences, I think they got medals. Okay, so my question towards, my as a statist, my question towards you as an anarchist would be, um, if the argument for the privatization of nuclear weapons is simply that, well, we're not doing so well now with state-controlled nuclear weapons, but it seems imaginable that we could be doing worse. Uh, no, 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 no. This is not the argument yet, right? Okay. This is simply pointing out that we scarcely have an optimum situation, not to mention the basic fact that the only reason nuclear weapons exist really is because of governments, right? I mean, it wasn't like GM or GE or Staples woke up one morning and said, hey, you know, it'd be great. Bombs that irradiate and destroy entire cities and leave nuclear shadows on the ground and destroy crops and, and cause genetic damage for dozens of years. Let's do that, right? Let's not figure out a better way that scotch tape can come off the serrated bit at the edge so it doesn't cut your damn thumb. Let's create weapons of mass destruction. This stuff around, comes around because of governments and who knows what the next one is going to be. So these aren't arguments as to why things will be better in a free society. These are perspectives so that we understand that you don't have to do really well to improve on what's here, right? I, I suppose I could go along with that. Okay, so what is the purpose of a nuclear weapon? Right, because if we want to know how things are going to be handled in a free society, we first have to know what they're for. So, in your opinion, Mr. Statist, what is the purpose of a nuclear weapon? Uh, I would give it two, and the obvious is mass destruction, and the second would be the threat of mass destruction. Well, the purpose of a nuclear weapon... I mean, the effect of a nuclear weapon is mass destruction. I okay. mean, the purpose in what are they for, right? Of course, I mean, they're for, um, their they're, sorry, their function is to destroy things. Would you uh -huh. say that their purpose is offensive or defensive? I guess offensive. would be, It would be more offensive than defensive. Okay, so if you want to invade a country, you would nuke it. Well, no, I I wouldn't as a somewhat rational. No, no, but person. that's I mean, imagining you're some Doctor Strangelove character, right? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to walk around somewhere that I just nuked. So, I mean, I think that would be even in a sociopathic sense, I would be really short-sighted to to nuclear bomb some land that I plan on putting my physical body on. Yeah, because even uh, if you don't care about the people, even if they're all just little ants to you, you're still irradiating the ground and, and right. of course, all of that, right? Yeah. Plus, I mean, there's the general horror of, of the world as a whole, um, which, you know, with the exception of the amount of bombs that were dropped on North Vietnam during the Vietnam War, which was more than was dropped in the entire Second World War, seems to have a horror of indiscriminate bombing, right? Uh I kind of got lost in all your words there. <laughs> Sorry. So you irradiate the land um, and you come across as, let's just say, a pretty bad guy 
for using a new kind of country you want to invade. So you nuke it. Right. It's sort of sort of like calling in an, an airstrike on a car you want to steal. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it makes renders the land useless to you. So it's not a very good offensive weapon, right? Right. Okay. So I guess the it would be more of a defensive weapon in that sense. I, uh, it's more of a threatening weapon. I really don't know. I, I've not thought of it. I think the word you're looking for is deterrence. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. so it's a deterrent weapon insofar as you say, if you invade me, I may use my nuclear weapons, right? Mm-hmm. So right. it's a deterrence weapon, right? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Now, how many deterrence weapons do you need? If, if I understand it, the U.S. has thousands and thousands of nuclear warheads. Um, I guess uh, enough to blow up the world once over would seem uh, no. reasonable enough. No, because if it's a deterrent weapon, it must be against a specific enemy, right? Well, if the whole world is your enemy, then, uh, you know. Okay, what, what are the odds of every single country except the United States invading the United States? Well, I don't, I don't know if China or someone. No, no. Come yeah. on. Every single country. Are you going to like, I, I don't mind saying. if you role play an annoying person, but don't be an annoying person, right? <laughs> it's not, I mean, Trinidad and Tobago is not going to invade a nuclear power, right? Can we at least go with that? Fiji is not going to send laser guided shark missiles into, uh, into New York, right? I'm thinking more along the lines of the game Risk. And if you have two players in risk and one owns all of the nations except the one you own, then okay, can we can we can we not use board games in our analysis of the real world military? Okay, so then what is the upper limit? That's, of that's literally like me trying to start a real estate agent career by buying Monopoly, right? I mean, let's nobody owns all these countries, right? It has was, to be some specific enemy that is going to be attacking you, right? Yeah, so I was going to the maximum upper limit of what could be the largest enemy possible. And so if we're not going to okay, do... Okay, but let's, let's deal with the real world. world. Let's okay, deal with the real world. The size right? of China. So there has, the biggest... country that's going to, there has to be some country that's going to attack you. And that country that's going to attack you, you may threaten with one or more nuclear warheads. You don't need thousands, right? I suppose not. I don't know what the limit is. It seems like thousands is too many. But thousands is too many. One is maybe too few. Yeah, maybe one is too few. Maybe you need five. Maybe you need ten. Because with a modern nuclear weapon, I mean, you can pretty much disable even a very large country with targeted strikes on its major population centers and major transportation hubs. I mean, the country's pretty much done with like five, probably, right? Maybe ten. Uh, okay, yeah. Okay. So right now we have an overproduction of hundreds of times the number of nuclear weapons we actually need, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we're fine with that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. Okay. So in a free society, we need maybe a third of a percent or a half a percent of the current nuclear uh, weapons, right? Um, yeah, now that I'm thinking more in depth, I mean, maybe we could increase that number a little bit. You know, there could be some kind of sabotage or you want to have uh, more than you need. 
Um, just like if you have a savings account, you want to have more than just one month's worth of income. You want to have three to six months. So, uh, No, I understand that. Listen, one nuclear weapon is enough to deter a country from invading you. Because okay. where do you put that nuclear weapon? You put it in the military capital of wherever it's, being, it's coming from. Or you put it in the largest population center, which kills millions and millions of people, right? Okay. And in so other words, a if, a country has only has, if a country has only one nuclear weapon, it seems very unlikely it's going to be invaded, right? Yes. Yes. So uh, having 10 is having quite a bit of redundancy. Uh, okay. Maybe it's 11, right. maybe it's 12, but it's definitely not thousands and thousands, right? I would I, I can whoever, go with that, yeah. Yeah, whoever is invading you neither wants to die nor do they want to have a revolution, right? Yeah, thousands is too many. And, I can go with that. Right, because let's say, let's say that, I mean – I make something up. Let's say that China, the, the leaders in China want to nuke the United States. Well, of course, they're not going to do that. <laughs> Why would China never have a nuclear attack on the United States? Uh, for fear of repercussion? No. Well, yeah, that's true. But, I mean, let's say that the United States had no nuclear weapons. Um. Well, then they wouldn't nuke the U.S. because they would want to inhabit the U.S. and they would, you know, render it uninhabitable. All right. Let's say that 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 wasn't an issue either. So then they wouldn't nuke the U.S. uh, I don't know. I'm stumped now. Well, how much money does the United States owe China? Um, Yeah... I don't know that any that the really the smartest elite of China really think that they're ever going to get paid back. Well, yeah, but they're getting some interest payments, right? Um, okay. Well, if they took over the US and absorbed the economy, then they could I don't know. I I would imagine that they could uh absorb those industries and the profits they make into their economy and that would somewhat offset the debt that they would not be accruing interest from anymore by conquering the <laughs> Okay, US. I don't think that's true. But okay. because they'd be taking over a workforce, mostly the language they didn't speak, uh, and, and there'd be a huge amount of distance. Also, do you know how much China sells to the United States? Uh, I don't know the number, but I'd imagine we're the biggest uh, buyer of Chinese goods. Huge. Absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. So it would really not be very sensible. So I'm just sort of pointing out, right, some of the ways in which um, nuclear weapons could be viewed in a free society. So first of all, if we're talking about a free society like the whole world over, I don't think anyone's going to bother with nuclear weapons. I I just don't think. Because that would be like saying, let's say I'm running for, uh, I don't know, um, let's say I'm running for um, uh, to, to represent North Carolina. In, in an election, right? Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, it's not ISIS, not Al-Qaeda. We got to worry about it's those South Carolina people, those South Carolinians. They are going to come through the sewers with radioactive frogs and they're going to drill their periscopes up the stockings of our lady folk and they're going to take us over and they're going to rule us with an iron fist. We've got to have nukes. We've got to have laser-guided sky snakes and we've got to point them exactly at South Carolina. I mean, that would not be a very... Um, 
believable or or compelling campaign speech, right? I don't think so. Okay. I appreciate we can agree on that. If you don't agree on that, please never run for office. Or in fact, I like do, how you always stay. bring the conversation back to some common ground. That's a, a useful tactic. I, I, I see that in conversation now, talking with you. Right. So, uh, so, so the point is that um, in, in a free society, there will be a common methodology for resolving disputes, which is kind of what the states have under the federal government. But... The reality is that there will be a common methodology that's called reason, evidence, philosophy. There'll be ways of of mediating disputes across geographical areas, whether those will be countries or not. Who knows, right? So if we have a free world, then it will be no more as compelling to sell your nuclear warhead protection services to any particular country or former country than it would be within the states, between the states and so on. Because remember, if you are in a free society and you want to say we need nuclear weapons, then you have to sell those services to a skeptical and cheap-ass population who never wants to give you any money, right? Now, does this mean that there's no value in nuclear weapons? I think there's huge value in nuclear weapons. For instance, if there's some giant-ass asteroid that's bigger than both of the Kardashian ass cheeks uh, in a uh, in a centrifuge, if something that big <laughs> is slowly turning and being photographed by everybody in the known planet, if something that big right, so is heading towards Earth, I'm very happy yeah. for there to be nuclear weapons because Lord knows otherwise we have to send up um, some elf's dad with an Aerosmith song. So that's not going to be that great. So um, I would say nuclear weapons are fine. Uh, they're great for for asteroids or comets or whatever that might be coming but i think it's gonna be really hard to sell that stuff yeah uh, in, in a free core, society if, if you have just a free country or two and there are other countries around then yeah. you want to have the nuclear weapons as deterrence rather than as a make work project for radioactive dweebs okay. you want to have it as deterrence but you don't need a huge amount for deterrence now what is going to be the cost of maintaining 10 or 20 nuclear weapons and who gets uh, from ownership. a defensive standpoint I'm sorry? And, and who gets ownership? So part of the world is stateless, part of it is still uh, state-controlled, and so you want nuclear warheads as deterrence. Who has the private ownership of those nuclear weapons? How is that determined when the government is dissolved? I'm not sure. However, wait, I'm not sure what you mean when you say how is that determined. Well, I don't follow that. Okay, so if the state is in control of the, nu- the thousands of nuclear warheads we Oh, no, no, I understand here, that. No, then, we're talking so, about a free society, and you're saying, how is private ownership determined? I'm no, not sure what you mean. So what I'm saying is, as you just said, part of the world is free, part of it's still state-controlled, so you, the free part definitely should have some nuclear warheads as deterrence. But no, no, I thought, never said no. I never said definitely should have. Okay, I never so said that. Maybe it's they possible. want. Okay, it's possible. They want the nuclear warheads as deterrence, and obviously they transition from a state society to stateless. And previously, the state had control of the warheads, and now the stateless society, who has control of the warheads? How is that transition? How do you see that happening? Or, uh, but you like, understand how the free market works, right? I guess that transition, I do, I, no, no, no. I, I do understand how the free market but, no, works. No, you un- but you know how the free market works. How do you end up with control over something? How does Apple end up with control over a factory? Okay, but it's slightly different. I feel like it's... No, no, let's just look one step at a time. How does Apple end up with control of a factory? 
Or let's say the government is privatizing the post office. Who ends up with control over the post office? That exactly. I guess um, the highest bidder. Okay, the highest bidder. Now, well, of course, well, it's who, generally the most politically connected, but let's just pretend it's the free market for a moment. So the highest bidder is going to end up with control over the post office. And right? who do they pay now, for how the post does office? The, how does the highest bidder get the investors to provide money? Well, who do they pay for the, the post, post office? office? Who, do, who are they paying for the post office? Well, no, forget that. Forget that. We're just talking about you, – you, your question wasn't who gets paid. Your question is who ends up with the resource, right? So exactly. let's try and focus on that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So who ends up with the post office? Well, I mean my reaction in a, in a free market system, I would say it's who pays the most for it. But um, who are they paying? Okay, so let's, let's just say it's who pays the most for it. So who ends up with the nuclear weapons is whoever pays the most for it, right? Now, how do you get to pay the most for it in a free but society? I'm still, still – there's this fundamental – I feel like this is an important question is who are they buying it from? Who are they paying for the nuclear weapon? Why does that matter? Well, because if it goes to the highest bidder, I mean – and there's no transfer of funds. Uh, I could see now how maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like let's say let's say there's there's a bunch of guys selling off nuclear weapons and they all go and make off to the hills of Brazil with a fish tank full of Hitler's remains and they go and try and reanimate his corpse using their pro who cares? Maybe it goes to the national debt. Maybe it goes to all the people for restitution for all the time they spent in jail for nonviolent crimes. Maybe it goes to children who've been abused in government schools uh, or government uh, um, teen camps or maybe who wow. knows. This is, Who knows, uh, right? It doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where the money expanding. goes. Yeah. It doesn't matter where it goes. But the, the point is that okay. someone is going to be able to offer the most for the nuclear weapons, right? Okay, yeah, I'm on board. Okay. Now, that person or group, probably it's going to be a group, how are they able to offer the most for those nuclear weapons? Uh, because they have the most? They have the most? Well, no, to... no. Uh. Because if you have a lot of money, it's because you're not stupid with money. And so okay. you could put you could put I don't know let's say they cost a trillion dollars I don't know whatever right so you've got a trillion dollars why would you buy nuclear weapons rather than invest in some something else or create a factory or just sit around and you know masturbate to pictures of the queen I don't know but For why would you terms. take all of that money and put it into nuclear weapons it's because right. you uh, will get the best return on investment for that money right that that's how you get a hold of a resource is you are able to put it to its most productive use and by its most productive use, I mean that which the customers want the most, right? Uh, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll tell you what I would want from somebody who wanted to take over nuclear weapons. I would say, look, I want most of these sons of bitches completely deactivated, I want third parties to ensure they're deactivated. I want it videoed. I want it put on YouTube. I want to know that these weapons are deactivated. Okay. I don't want them to be used to create new legions of Marvel superheroes. I don't want them to be used to radiate somebody's cheese and tomato sandwich. I want these things completely deactivated. I don't care if you've got to bury them in the moon. Whatever you've got to do, get this crap deactivated. That's what I – and I pay for money for that. I would pay money for that. 
then I'd say, listen, but I want to, I want to keep a few around. Space aliens, giant rocks from space, Lord knows what. Deterrence, right? Yeah. Now, who, I think that's a pretty common belief. I think, I think when people are actually personally paying for their defense, they want it to be as efficient and effective as possible, right? Sure. I mean, if you have a headache and I say, well, you can take chemo or an aspirin, which do you want? Yeah, the aspirin. Right, because it's the cheapest and most effective, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I don't know if chemo would do anything for that, but just, you know, indulge um, me. Yeah. Right, and, and the reason we're talking about this in detail is it's part of a much larger picture about how things work in a free society. So how things work in a free society is you've got to go and sell your plan to the general population. Now, someone who investors genuinely believe will appeal the most to the general population is the person or group who will end up with those resources. So the allocation, for want of a better word, of nuclear weapons will fall to those who reflect and respond to consumer preferences as efficiently and effectively as possible. Do you understand? It's much more democratic and much more citizen-controlled than what we currently have. I mean, you never wanted thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons, did you? No. I didn't. I mean, who the hell would? So what we have right now is absolutely anti-democratic. But what we have in the future is an incredibly democratic system where people vote with their dollars to figure out how things will work and, and what's going to happen, right? Now, yeah. again, personally, I would like to see nuclear weapons installed on the moon to deal with any rogue asteroids, because then you get to launch in lower gravity, like one-sixth of the Earth's gravity, plus you don't have air resistance to deal with. So it's going to be more accurate to point something in a vacuum and have it hit something if necessary. I don't even want these things on the planet. But uh, that's what I would prefer. It's going to be more expensive, but I'll, you know, I would pay for that myself. Now, I think, I think this would cost 30 or 40 bucks a year for any reasonably sized population. As opposed to the Lord knows how many tens of thousands of dollars a year for each working person is currently being sucked out of the future through fiat currency printing and debt uh, for the current military industrial complex. Yeah. So who gets the resources are the people who reflect the dollar voting people's will the most. Does that make any sense? It does. Um, and I, I feel like uh, I've got like 60 or 70 percent of the logic of this argument down, but the holes aren't really coming to me. Not that there are holes, but just my the holes in my own understanding. Uh, and so I'll need to really digest uh your answer but you just to have to say who question. who gets the resources in a free society? Who gets yeah. the resources in a free society That's are those who please the customers the best. Who gets yeah. the post office in a free society? Whoever pleases the customers the best. And that may be somebody who wants to dismantle the post office and sell off the resources so that they can be used for things that people want even more than the post office. I mean, what's the post office for these days? It's to provide work for traumatized 
ex-military, like 40% of the post office is, is ex-military, which is why going postal makes sense, is to provide employment for minorities and is to deliver you bills and junk mail. Well, you can get bills online and who the hell really wants junk mail? Right. So uh, it's just it's a massive welfare state and tree slaughtering environmental catastrophe. So in the future, I mean, not having the infrastructure for physical mail would be fantastic. And is there really anything which can't be delivered uh, or, or figured out how to be delivered through other methods, except maybe sort of physical things or whatever. Right. So who gets resources in a free society? is whoever can please the customers the most and the best. So what people really want and are willing to pay for with the disposition and deployment of nuclear weapons is what a free society will provide. Because everyone who wants to buy these nuclear weapons is going to have to make a pitch to investors. Right. I mean, most people haven't gone through this process and I'm sorry to be annoying and, and quote experience, but having given a number of pitches to investors myself is hard work. Investors are incredibly skeptical. They have six million other people who want to take and use their money for stuff. And so if you want to say, listen, I provide the very best place for you to park your money. Better than everyone else, they are going to want to know that you really know what you're doing. Also, if, if you screw anything up particularly with nuclear weapons, they're going to get a very bad reputation. Hey, aren't you the group that invested in that guy who sold nuclear weapons to space aliens and the Vogons and they inflicted all their bad poetry on us at gunpoint and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. So, so if, if you want investors' money, you have to really convince them that you know what you're doing, you're going to do the right thing, that you have a market share, that you've done the market research, that everything is ready to go, and you're not going to give them a bad reputation, right? Right. Right, I mean, Jeff Berwick recently, um, he's got this gold sculpture thing that was going on in Chile, and uh, salespeople representing his and another guy's organization were selling land plots to people that they didn't actually have the legal right to sell. So that's bad. I mean, people paid tens and tens of thousands of dollars for these plots. Now it's all dissolved into this chaos of suing and countersuing and it's legal wrangle and the odds of anyone getting their money out are tiny, right? Right. Now, what's it going to be like when some people who are involved in that group want to go out and sell people? Well, not good, right? Right. And so you don't want to get involved in things where reputations get really tarnished. Because having a bad reputation significantly raises the cost of doing business. And I'm, I'm cognizant of, look, I'm cognizant of this every day. I mean, people donate money for this show. And if I <laughs> go off on some, if I go off on, if I go off half cocked, which is not possible because I'm always fully cocked, <laughs> then people are going to be like, damn, <laughs> right? Damn. I gave money to this guy, and now what is he talking about? He's actually a reptile man? Or like, what's he doing? I gave him money to spread reason and peace and evidence in a courageous manner throughout the planet. And I know if I what, start doing stupid, yeah, if I start doing stupid, crazy shit, people are like, damn, I can't believe that guy, right? Yeah, so uh, stay on your rocker, Stefan. 
I'm I'm going to stay fully cocked on my rocker. <laughs> rock cocked. That is that is our new business plan. That is our motto. Free domain radio. Fully rock cocked. <laughs> yes, that would be a wonderful, a wonderful T-shirt. As long as you leave holes for the nipples, I, I fully approve that T-shirt. So, so that I mean, if if you understand that process, then people get resources because they're able to prove to incredibly skeptical investors that they can do a return on their investment superior to everyone else, and that they are the best people to do that one thing. That's better than everyone else, right? It's sort of like saying, well, how do movie roles get allocated? How does, how does movie, how does like the leading man in a movie or the leading, how do they get allocated? Right? Well, with men, hair thickness and with women, cleavage. No, but I mean, how do they get allocated? They get allocated because people do a huge amount of number crunching as to how audience respond, how audiences respond to particular actors. Will they come and see a film just because that actor is involved? And what has been the gross ROI on that actor's movies? Um, and as far as I understand it, number one is Matt Damon, which is one of the reasons he commands such a high salary. So how do movie roles get allocated? Well, based upon not what the actors want, not what the producers want, not what the screenwriter wants, but fundamentally on what the audience wants. Right. Right. And exactly the same thing is true. So when you say, well, how do who, who ends up with nuclear weapons? How do they get allocated? How do blah, blah, it's exactly the same as saying how do movie roles get allocated? Well, people get the most expensive actor they can afford. If they're smart, because expensive actor means good investment. Right? Yeah, but actors don't blow things up in in the uh, in real life, like uh, Matt Damon isn't an explosive weapon, and so somebody his are agent you really are you really going to state to me very obvious things like that? You don't want the conversation at that level, do you? Well, I'm just you don't want to tell somebody... me that Matt Damon is not a weapon of mass destruction, right? What's to s- like you don't want to make that case to What's me, right? What's to say that I you're okay? I see that you are on board with that uh, uh, fundamental aspect of this argument so i'm saying what if a rogue uh seized control of a nuclear arm when the state disintegrated away and then wanted to use it for their own sociopathic wants uh what is the scenario there how to how to deal with uh, some kind of rogue that has a nuclear weapon are you saying to me in 200 years, how do we deal with people who somehow, against all protections that people are paying for, get a hold of a weapon of mass destruction and wish to use it? Yeah. Do you think we may be pushing the boundaries of actionable ethics at the moment? Perhaps, yeah, actually. And so I don't want to take up everyone else's time. If I get... I, I think I need to digest I mean, sorry, the answer the, the, to this. No, no, no. The, very brief, the very brief answer is that's exactly what we're paying for people to avoid, right? right? If, if I'm paying some dudes to hold 10 or 12 nuclear weapons, I'm paying for them to have it not fall into the hands of terrorists, right? Right. And I'm talking about that tra- that in-between period that it, it, it's – you're right. I'm really, you know, picking at – so whatever they've got to do to keep it safe is whatever they've got to do to keep it safe. 
Look, governments don't want governments, governments who are selling nuclear weapons to private defense agencies don't want them stolen. Right. Right. Because that's actually money they'll be making from the sale of it. Right. I mean, it's not like when Brinks ships 50 gold bars, they're like, eh, you know, if a couple fall off the truck, who cares? Right. All right. I see. I see the um, perhaps fallacy in my question. And so if I only had nobody, a minute. Hang on. I, nobody is going to want hang on. Nobody is also going to want to buy from a government that loses nuclear weapons. Right. Right. I guess I'm somewhat so confused the governments by that who are going to be selling the weapons off to the private industries have every incentive to make sure they're not stolen. Whoever is buying them has every incentive because that's how they make their money. How they make their money is keeping the population safe from nuclear weapons while still having nuclear weapons for their vaguely useful uses like against asteroids or something like that, right? Right. Okay, so basically so I have the whole the whole the whole point, sorry, the whole the whole point it's like saying I mean again, now you're going to tell me that toilets are not explosive, which is arguable when we've had Indian food, but it's like saying how do we like what happens if you hire a plumber and the plumber installs a toilet that backfires, you know, with the force of a howitzer? Uh, and gives you basically a nuclear shit shadow well, against your Stephen, bathroom that's wall. Not exactly, well, the whole point that's is not that, exactly what I was asking, and I feel like I just didn't articulate my follow-up question, and I'd actually really like to move on to the second question, because I'm convinced by your argument. I was just trying to pick apart some small detail, okay. and I got it. So just not to take up too much of uh, the other listeners' times, my second question was uh, the protection or the... Um, how how crime resolution works for people who can't afford to pay for insurance or uh, dispute resolution organizations. So they experience okay, a hit and run how does it? Um, uh, okay, so let's say so, it, so let's say um, you have no money in a free society, and you get hit by a car which then drives away, and and you wish to pursue some sort of legal justice against that. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, so how does it work right now? Uh, I guess your um, legal, your yeah, your justice is subsidized by other people that are you know paying through uh, coercion to fund state justice system. Okay, Mike, can you just do me a quick favor, Mike Rostoyan? If you could just look up how long it takes. I think it's in Detroit. How long it takes to get uh, a conviction for a crime? Uh, how long justice takes and how many times they can't get a conviction because all of the witnesses are dead um, by the time something I read something on this a little while back. And I think I, I don't want to talk off the top of my head, but if you could uh, look it up, um, I'd appreciate that. We'll get back to the facts and you can read off that stuff in a sec. So um, right now uh, what happens is you, you turn things over to the state and it takes m- months, usually years to get any kind of potential resolution, you are given a lawyer uh, who is uh, underpaid and overworked and uh, has no financial incentive in the disposition of justice. And then what happens is usually the victim, uh, and it usually is a victim of whoever the state is trying to corner or corral, what they do is they are threatened with uh, huge sentences 
And then they say, but if you plead guilty, we'll reduce that by some significant factor. So, oh, it's going to be 10 years, but if you plead guilty, it's going to be 18 months. In other words, you can bribe someone with 85% of their own freedom. You can't bribe anyone with a dollar, but you can bribe them with years of their life, which is why 96, 97% of U.S. prosecutions never go to trial. Because basically, it's just this massive double jeopardy. Actually, that's not quite the right phrase, right phrase. Um, it's this massive gamble that people are unwilling to take, which is, okay, well, if I plead guilty, I know it's going to be over in 18 months. Maybe I get out in nine months with good behavior and then it's over. But if I don't plead guilty, if I work to defend myself, if I'm not guilty, then it's going to take years. I could end up with a much worse sentence. In fact, I most likely will. And so I'm just going to take the bullet even if I'm innocent. So right now, the chances of getting justice in a status court system are exceedingly low, like indefinitely in the low single digits in terms of percentages. So that's sort of where we stand at the moment. So the idea of, well, well how, how could we possibly improve on this current government justice system? I don't know, um, attack cats. I mean, who knows? Anything would be an improvement than what we have right now. So I sort of, again, when you're talking with status, they sort of have this position like, well, it's great now. And how does a free society replicate the amazingly wonderful government system we have right now? And I'm like, if I thought a free society would replicate the government system, I would never, ever do what I'm doing. Right. Because it's just not it's not what we want uh, in a society. The only people who, who think that the government dispenses justice are those who've never had anything to do. With the justice system, right? I uh, would fall into that group. Okay, so if you've had anything to do with the justice system, then anything would be an improvement. Like nun- a rain cloud of nunchucks would be an improvement over what's going on right now, because at least the nunchucks would hit some guilty people. What about like a middle-aged prison system? Is that an improvement on current status, state-controlled justice system? That's still a statist system, right? So you're comparing apples to apples here, right? Mm. So, so look, as far as if you want to live in a civilized society, and we assume everyone who's not evil does, so you, me, and 19 other listeners, um, then obviously we recognize that there are some people who will not have the money to pay for whatever legal issues they get involved in, right? Yeah. And they will be taken care of through charity. I mean, Americans give a hundred billion dollars a year to charity, even when they're uh, basically their wallets are extracted through their widened tax staring eyeballs to pay for the welfare state. They're still able to cough up over a hundred billion dollars in charity, right? So they'll be taken care of through charity. It's it's completely obvious. Charity rushes in to fill the vacuum that welfare leaves behind, just as welfare has elbowed aside the friendly societies and charities that used to take care of the poor. But but charities take care of the poor intelligently, Mm -hmm. which means that they're constantly refining ways to, to make it better. Um, Because, because taking care of the poor is a really delicate business, right? Obviously you want to help people. To, to get out of being poor, but at the same time, you don't want to help them so much, right, that the safety net turns into a hammock where it's 
cooler to chill out in the hammock than it is to go and, and write. So it's a real challenge uh, to, to help the poor. I'm not that great at it other than by doing podcasts. Like whenever I've tried to help the poor, um, it generally ends up being uh, uh, not uh, not helping the poor. Um, so, which is why I outsource my charity to people who know what they're doing. You know, I, I don't help the poor by giving them, uh, <laughs> by fixing their teeth with a crowbar and I don't help the poor by giving the money directly. I leave that to the experts. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, this would just be another example of people who, uh, who need charity. You know, when doctors were not controlled by the state, they used to spend usually a morning or an afternoon or sometimes even a whole day a week working pro bono. I mean, this is well-documented. Lawyers would do the same thing. Lawyers have a pro bono uh, system. And I personally would like to do business with lawyers who have a pro bono system because I know there are people who need legal protections in a free society if there would even be lawyers. The whole point of a free society is you shouldn't even need a lawyer because the law book should be about 10 commandments with one asterisk called, and we really mean it. <laughs> so so uh, th this would be a recognized problem which would affect a tiny, tiny minority of people 50 cents a year from everyone would be, would be enough to cover whatever costs they needed. Uh, it's not a um, – I don't think it's a, it's a huge issue. Well, I'm glad you put it in perspective for me. And uh, and I also – sorry, the last thing I'd say is that I would expect pro bono work from my DRO, from my dispute resolution organization. I would expect pro bono work because both from a – it's nice to help people standpoint and also from the standpoint, I do not want a group of people created in society who have no access to dispute resolution, right? right. How's that going to work out? Yeah, it's not well, <laughs> right? Because people say, well, what if you end up with this pool of society of people who have no access to dispute resolution? It's like, I don't want that, right? So, so I, I will pay money for that not to happen because it's going to be cheaper for me to pay a little extra in charity than it is for this entire group of people to be created who have no ac uh, access to peaceful dispute resolution, right? Yeah, I'm with you. So that's my thoughts. Uh, and I so appreciate your thoughts. It's really been uh, an honor and a privilege <laughs> to have this conversation, and I hope we get to talk again uh, in the future. I hope so, too. Thank you very much for your question. Mm -hmm, Bob. Mike, did we get anything on that Detroit mess? Still looking oh, for yeah. it. Couldn't find anything immediately. Um, I remember reading it, Maybe too, it's Chicago. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It was in the New York Times, and it was uh, maybe just try Detroit murder delay or Chicago murder delay trial. It's, um, it's worth mentioning, I think, if we can find it, because it's so ridiculous how unbelievably clogged up the system is, where it takes like five years to even get a hearing in a murder trial and by then people have moved away or they're dead or they've gone in the wind or something like that. I mean, it really is crazy just how little um, gets achieved in the, in the government system. As I mentioned this before, the only time I ever wanted to get involved in something legal, I was told it was going to take me about 10 years and a quarter of a million dollars to be able to pursue this with no guarantee of any kind of outcome. And uh, holy, it was... Uh, it was a bad scene. I won't get into any more details, but uh, I ended up taking another route, which was um, a, a private dispute resolution situation, which, you know, long before I be, even became an anarchist, but uh, uh, certainly did strike me um, when I did become an anarchist that that's exactly the uh, solution that I pursued, which worked out all right. I'm still looking for it, so uh, we'll splice it in if we find it later. But uh, for now, I think best to move on as we continue the search. If people in the chair right, room can thanks, help bye, out guys. with that. Oh, thank you very much, Chris.
All right. Well, up next is Clark. And Clark wrote in and said, do you think it's more effective to take immediate or delayed action when attempting to protect children of relatives from abuse, specifically a situation where the abuse is completely destructive and unrelenting, but not illegal or even socially unacceptable? Sorry about that. Can you um, give me an example? Hello. Yes, I called called in the show. Mm probably about a year ago and the situation being my sister went to rehab and left her kids behind with her mother. And I've been trying to help them as much as possible. I don't know. You probably don't remember the call, but I was li- I'm still living with my mom and trying to. Right. But what is, and I, no, I do remember the call, but what, what is the, um, what is the abuse that you're talking about? I mean, you said it's not illegal, so well, I assume it's, it's yeah. screaming and spanking yeah, kind of thing? screaming. She doesn't, not necessarily spanking. My mom. As far as, as far as I'm concerned, she's like just pure evil, um, sociopathic, psychotic, whatever name you want to throw at it. So it's a whole range of things, but overall mental, emotional. I'm sorry, you've got a squeaky background noise that's pretty that's distracting. I'm not sure what that is. Sorry about that. I'll turn it off. Um, okay. Overall, mental uh, and emotional abuse. Right. Um, I mean, I can give you some specifics right. if I, if you want. Yes, that's a good so idea. So basically, you know, if the one little girl, if she's crying or something like that, she'll just ignore her and wait for it to stop. Which, um, and it's not like just normal crying. She'll throw, she'll be up in her room just like screaming her head off, just completely, completely uh, destroyed about something. And she'll just ignore her and leave her there for as long as it takes for her to stop. And then also, um, it's kind of, it's hard for me to like, to, to talk about anything specifically because it's all it all sounds trivial when you like make um, focus on one thing. No, listen, just, what you what you have just said, what you have just said does not sound at all trivial to me. Well, yeah. The idea that a child is so angry, frustrated, upset, and hysterical, and being left alone, yeah, is basically just seeing a grease fire running out of the house and crossing your fingers that it doesn't burn the whole goddamn place down. Yeah, I mean, that is not minor at all. I mean, children need to learn how to self-manage and basically allowing their emotional system to burn itself out creates such a foundation of rage and resentment that it turns children into like time bombs or proximity mines, I guess, is... um is what I would maybe characterize it more as. So what you're talking about there is incredibly uh, destructive. And this kind of neglect is entirely underappreciated in terms of its devastating effects on children. So it's not like, well, I need something bigger than that. What you're saying there is huge already. Yeah, and that's that's just one tactic. I mean, that's just one thing. And obviously it's not trivial to me at all. And I'm used to it sounding trivial to most people. I I don't really have really any uh, meaningful conversations with people so um 
Yeah, basically, w- w- waiting for a child to calm down is like being a doctor and saying, well, I'll just wait for the patient to bleed out, and then I'll just go in and pronounce them dead. Uh, that is not yeah. uh, how you want to be dealing with that stuff. Well, what what happens in that situation is I'll go, if I'm here, I will go and comfort her anyway, even though my mom doesn't want me to, and then she'll come up there and be like, you're ruining everything. I got to start over and just, just completely evil. And I just I have no. How old are the kids again? Three and a half and two and a half. Right. Well, I mean, again, I'm I'm just giving you obviously amateur off the cuff feedback here. I mean, if there's nothing illegal going on, then the the the, the police obviously aren't going to get involved. Well. And I should, sorry, I should probably there. She is also alcoholic. So there, it is, it is possibly a child protective services um, thing, but I'm, why do you think she wants these children? I mean, this is something I, I mean, we had a caller in recently. Uh, basically the, the dad was using the kids as welfare hostages, you know, like uh, they come with a check. So I don't want to see them, but for God's sakes, don't take them away from me. It's always been kind of baffling to me as to why people who find out they don't like having kids keep the kids. Well, I could give you two I mean, you can drop your kids off at a hospital. You can drop them off at a fire station. You can drop them off at the police station. And the authorities will take those children, no questions asked. And they'll probably do some decent amount of work to try and find some kind of um, home for them, uh, which it's hard to imagine could be worse. Could be, I guess, but... I just I find it baffling as to why people hang on to kids that they just don't want. Is, is she getting money for these kids? No, uh, she, she like get, I said, no? in my opinion, she displays a lot of sociopathic um, personality traits. And I would classify her more like a narcissist to where she's probably training them to be sources to where she can feed on. And then the other thing is she just she wants to look good on Facebook and and. Her social circle. She doesn't. Oh, so she's got. Yeah, she's got ornament kids, yeah, right? Exactly. They're like trained. Yeah, my mom was like, because my brother and I were, my brother and I were like, blonde, so blonde. We were like white haired, like, <laughs> like uh, um, pre-colonial Eddie Winters uh, kids, and and we were cute as a bunch of buttons. And uh, she just she loved to take us out, and everybody would say how cute and how charming and how intelligent and how well spoken. I mean, she just glowed. For that kind of stuff. And, um, of course, once we got into our teenage years and developed personalities and capacities and, uh, dare I say, body odors all our own, uh, it became a kind of a different story. But so is it that she wants and, and of course, loneliness drives a lot of people to hang on to their kids as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like they're the, they're the people who can't get away. Yeah. You know, like everyone else can just get up and get the fuck out if you're being a total bitch or an asshole. But kids, they're the people who just can't get away. And uh, that is relevant. pretty brutal. That's Sorry, actually pretty relevant. She's, I mean, she's the only person who comes ever comes over here is also an alcoholic. And that's my aunt, my aunt Teresa, who comes over on the weekends. And they, you know, they get pretty much passed out drunk on the couch. And... And there's one thing that's, in my experience, I mean, there are definitely some solitary drunks. Yeah. But in my experience, 
alcoholics have like the most bottomless and terrifying and pathological fear of being alone. And that also may be why some drinkers hang on to their kids. Yes. So, um, how often do you get to see them? Well, right now I barely see them for the past year. I've, like I said before on a previous call, I've been their full-time caregiver. I was seeing them from about seven in the morning to five in the afternoon. Right now I've gone back to work full-time. The kids have been put in daycare and I'm looking into moving out because I've reached my limit on what I can do here. I can, I cannot, I can't survive in this environment anymore. I, I mean, I'm, I'm way past my limit. So I just, I have to get out because she's just pure evil and she'll, she'll really, she'll stop at nothing to get her way. And I, um, I can ignore her and I can not be affected in that moment by what she's saying, but overall it just takes its toll on me and um, I just can't do it anymore. It's driving me crazy just being around right. her. Like, and that's the, that's the part is like, I know, I know what it's like being her kid and it's pretty much to exist around her is to be destroyed. Like you can't, you're just a, just a tool to her, just something to be manipulated. If you have your own needs, your own preferences, you have, you will be destroyed. And she's the same way with me today. So look, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm going to try and push back at the developing and enveloping cloaks of helplessness that are coming out of you at the moment, because uh, that's not uh, a particular value, particularly in this conversation. So from a practical standpoint, you can either go for custody or go for some sort of visitation rights, or you can not. Right. As far as I and again, this is all just off the cuff. I don't even know where you live. So don't sort of tell me any of that stuff. But you can either try and go and get some legal access to the kids or not. Now, if you want to do that, then you're going to have the challenge, perhaps, of proving her an unfit mother in a court of law, in family court of law, which is pretty pro female as far as I understand it. I've never spent any time in family court, but that's sort of my uh, understanding and so if you want to do that, then, of course, you need to go and talk to a lawyer and figure out how you might be able to go about doing that. Um, I don't know whether or not unfit mother uh, has the category called and she does a whole bunch of illegal stuff. I don't know whether or not that's the case in, in wherever you are. But if you talk to a lawyer about that and say, look, this is my situation. What do I do? There's no philosophical answer to where you are. Right. This is a show about philosophy. So I think that probably would be better for you to talk to a lawyer if you wish to pursue having some sort of contact, even if it's supervised contact with um, your uh, sister's kids, but there's no philosophical answer as to how you can help them, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. And maybe we could uh, switch the conversation over to what you're talking about before, like the helplessness and all that. But before we do that, um, I do not, I do not want to get custody of them. I think what would be best for them is to be put up for adoption and also, I will have no problem seeing the kids, whether I move out or not. So 
I can come see them whenever I want. I can take them whenever I want. I'll just give her an opportunity to drink. And regardless of what I do, the next maybe 20 minutes later or the day later, she'll completely forget and be right back. Maybe not forget, but she'll be right back where she started where like nothing happened. So that's not an issue. Well, then you're only, I think as far as I understand it, then if you don't want to pursue this, then in terms of getting custody, then uh, my understanding is that you can either get the government involved or you can attempt to convince your sister about what is best for the children. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming that the latter is not exactly no, my, my sister what you think is, is not possible. going to be helpful at all. So pretty much it's down right. to, so, sorry, it's down to get the government involved or just keep or try to help from the sidelines. Like those, I don't really see any other options. If I, even if I tried to get custody of the kids, I don't see how, how much I'm going to be able to help them without, I would, they would be in daycare all day. Right. Right. And right. I, you know, I'd have no girlfriend look, to have. There is, like that, so. Yeah. Look, and I, uh, I really sympathize and it's not a topic I particularly enjoy, but it is an important topic to talk about is that although the children are victims and although you obviously care enormously about them, which is to your credit, if there's nothing you can do that's productive, there's nothing you can do that's productive. This is the system. Like We live with the system we have, right? Yes. We can't magically snap our fingers and change it. And although the children sound like they're in a desperately bad situation, at some point, at some point, you do have to take care of yourself. Yeah, I agree completely. And I've actually been talking to some people on the on the website and the chat, and I've come to that conclusion. And maybe that's probably more relevant to talk about because I've definitely been in that helpless state of mind for about the past half a year, probably more. And just this past, like right now I'm looking into purchasing trailer home and moving out. I should, I should be moved out here in a couple of weeks. But prior to that, I definitely was just kind of you know, laying, laying on the ground in a pool, of my own blood, just being beaten and just help, just waiting for somebody right. to help and nobody helps. Okay. So let me, let me tell you something very important about life and that is this in the long run whatever strengthens you in the pursuit of virtue helps you but whatever contributes to your sense of helplessness will kill your capacity for virtue Virtue and helplessness are antonyms. They're opposites. Virtue is to confidently act knowing that you can make some difference, knowing you can make some change. The primary purpose of evil people is to instill helplessness in the morally energetic. Let me say that again. The primary purpose of evil people is to instill a sense of helplessness in the morally energetic. Yeah. And the best way to do that 
is with hostages. Yeah. If you can't save the children, then you must save yourself. And if being around this family is decaying and degrading your capacity to act effectively, to be happy, to, to have efficacy in your life. In other words, if they're like something that lifts your wheels off the ground, so no matter how much gas you hit, all you get is a bunch of spinning, then you must, in my opinion, withdraw from the situation where you can neither act to save the children nor stand to see them destroyed. And you must prepare yourself if you want children to be a better parent than what you have observed. Yep. I couldn't... Because if, if, some, if some woman comes around you at the moment, what's she going to see? Oh, yeah. No, I do not. I can't even consider it at the moment. But yeah, I, I agree exactly with what you're about to say. I, I can't even consider the data. And this is all straight out of Compton. No, wait. Straight out of Nietzsche via Compton. Right? Whatever swells your capacity for power is the good. Whatever diminishes your capacity for power is the evil. Now, by power, I don't mean what Nietzsche mean, meant by power, which was domination, efficaciousness in an amoral sense. But I'm mixing virtue into that which is power. Whatever adds to your capacity for virtue is good. Whatever detracts from your capacity to virtue for virtue is bad. And so if being around your sister who is mistreating these children adds to your sense of depression and helplessness and makes you feel overwhelmed by the black tidal wave of immorality that races around the world over and over and over again, laps the world sometimes 60 times a second, it feels like. Yeah. No, it's over, overwhelmed. Then exactly it. You, ha- you have to escape that. You have to escape that. It's not the children's fault, but it's not your fault either. Yeah. And if you cannot act to save the children, you must act to save yourself. Look, if the children were in a car underwater that was heading down and you could not get the doors open and you were running out of air, what would you do? Yeah, I would go back up to get air and then come back down. Right. And yeah, that's that's exactly the situation. And at some point you would not come back down, right? Yeah. If it had been 10 minutes and the kids had no air, they would be dead, right? Well, yeah. I guess that's my problem because right now I'm thinking I would go down and get the bodies at least. uh, Well, you can't, right? I mean, the the analogy dies at that point, right? So what you're saying about the... um, about her destroying my uh, my energy to have virtue or whatever it's you look what i'm saying is that there will be less virtue in the world if you allow 
your sense of energy and efficacy to be destroyed by your sister, there will be less virtue in the world than if you break free yeah. and regain your sense of the power of virtue. Yeah, I agree completely. Virtue is designed, virtue is designed to have effect in the world and not in the imaginary world of politics or the comic book world of the military. Virtue is designed to have an effect in the real world. If you are in a situation where virtue cannot have a positive effect, if you stay there, you will sand down your sword to nothingness. Yeah. You will lose your spine. You will lose your capacity for action. You'll be overwhelmed, drowned, and destroyed by the paralysis of unresponsive, unrelenting, all-powerful evil. Yeah. I was just, I was, don't let that happen to you, whatever you do. I was going to comment on how, how accurate that was. I mean, that's, I think of her as like a different species now. And when this started out, I was, I had like a different frame of mind completely. And even like when I listened back to the call I had with you, I'm like almost ashamed and I can't even, I can barely bear to listen to myself talk because yeah, I just completely, was completely um, not taking in the full reality of the situation and how she just has no conscience. She, it's just all manipulation. And I thought I could like teach her. I thought I could show by example, like, look, this is what works. This is what doesn't. And I had so much progress with them and I did a lot of good in the beginning. And then it just, it got to the point where it was just a constant battle and, like you said, it got to the point where I was just completely overwhelmed and it hasn't been until the past month or two that I've really realized I need to just get the fuck out of here because I'm not going to make it. If I stay here any longer, I'm going to go crazy and lose all, all, all will to survive. And this past month, I've just been really motivated to do stuff to be just motivated and happy to be alive and to have a chance to do stuff again and it's it's hard yeah you gotta you gotta you have to listen to your instincts about when you're spinning your wheels right you you for me it came right after obsession right so obsession occurs when you're out of anything even remotely obvious and you just keep spinning round and round in your head. I could try this. Oh, wait, no, I tried that. I could try that. Well, then there'll be this bad circumstances. Well, I guess I could try this, but I've heard this really bad thing. Yeah. I could try that, but, 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 yeah. right? Like a Minoj video. And right after obsession, which is where you frantically try and find a way away from the exit sign. The obsession is anywhere, 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 how, 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 and you obsess over it. And then, if you listen to yourself, at some point you will get, and it sounds like you're there, it's like you've been there for a while, that there is no answer. Yeah. There is no answer. Which is why I say to people, you have problems with your parents, problems with people. Go talk to them. Uh -huh. Lay it on the line. Tell them your thoughts. Tell them your feelings. Be honest. Be open. Don't yeah, I, stay in the stupid-ass null zone. Yeah. 
It's like it's like trying to turn yourself instead of into a planet into that giant ass ring of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter. You just shatter yourself in that null zone. Go talk. Go be honest. But go be open because then you'll find out if you have any purchase in the other person's personality, if they have any receptivity to who you are as a human being. And if you are in a situation where you cannot affect things for the good, it is moral suicide to stay. Yeah. Yeah. I, if, if you talk, if you open up to people, they'll let you know exactly who they are. And I've done that with her and she let me know exactly who she was. And it's, uh, yeah. And so the, the question is with people in your life, can I have any effect on who you are. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Does my, does my perspective, does my argument, can I have any effect on who you are? Or am I like some idiot yelling at a movie? Yeah. Am I in a conversation or am I yelling at a statue? Well, it's like I'm yelling at a, and, at a rabid grizzly bear who, you know, it's, it's just, no, even a rabid grizzly bear will roar back or, you know, maybe they'll run away. But if the person has no capacity for self-knowledge, which is fundamentally no capacity to listen, when you have self-knowledge, you have the capacity to withstand criticism because you are more than just defenses. To have self-knowledge, you have to go through your defenses, which means you find out who you really are outside of the forts you built to defend yourself against trauma. If you don't have self-knowledge, all you are is defenses. Yeah. And people who don't have self-knowledge feel if they are criticized, in other words, if their defenses are breached, there's nothing for them. They're like a, a, a castle but nothing inside. Or as I said once about someone, he is an empty hide of bright, bright armor. He is an empty hide of bright armor. Right? You think you're fighting someone who's in the armor – you win and you take the helmet off and there's nothing there. So if all people have become is defenses and justifications and attack and more manipulation, yeah. if that's all who people have come, they have become self-blinded robots. It's input-output. There's no observing ego, no third eye that can observe them selves and compare their reactions to any sort of ideal standard. Yeah. They simply are massive defense mode. And they fight dirty. They'll say anything. They'll do anything. They'll sling whatever shit they need to to win the fight. They'll kick you in the balls. They'll pull a trap door. They'll release laser condors, whatever they got to do. Hold that. She won't hold anything back. And, yeah, yeah, she won't hold anything. And when you're with people who will fight dirty, then... It's time to toss aside the Queensborough rules for one thing. But people who are only constructed or have only constructed themselves to win no matter what, then there is no capacity for an interaction between two souls. You are literally trying to fence with a pre-programmed robot with no input. You're doing all the work. You're pretending that something is happening that's not happening. But without self-knowledge, we are as determined, as predetermined. Our, our responses and actions are as inexorable as a movie that's already been filmed. 
And I don't like to yell at movies. At least I haven't since I was about 10. Look over your shoulder. He's coming. Like you understand <laughs> because the movie has no input. It's just playing out. Yeah. So when you are with people who are only defenses, who are only justifications, who can never admit fault or error or change their minds or be wrong or compare their behavior to any kind of ideal standard, you are in a situation where your ethical efficacy is going to smash like kindling on the rocks of their fundamental indifference. Yeah. To external. Like I, I feel like you can only be around that person by not existing, by conforming. They yeah. need you to be the water that pours into their soulless container. You can't have any shape of your own. Yeah, and like you know, I get to the point where you have no option but to try to completely ignore her, and then she she attacks you for that. And it's like you're so mean to me. You ignore me, and it's like uh, you don't remember the. Oh, yeah, particularly if you're in the no-win situation, right? And that's... No matter what you do, they're right and you're wrong. It's your fault yeah. and they're perfect and nothing needs to be changed. And every, If you bring up a criticism, it's invalid. If it's valid, it's your tone that was incorrect. If your tone is correct, then the time you brought it up was insensitive. If the time you brought it up was, in, was, was just the right time, then it was with the wrong other person in the room or you know, right after a meal that she was trying to enjoy or right during a movie she was trying to... Like, no matter what... Yeah. Well, when this when this was happening, I also had a back injury, and I would I would be watching the kids all day, and they would you know they would make a mess sometimes, and some things would happen sometimes. It'd be a mess somewhere, and she'd come home and just completely flip her wig on me. Um, you know, ten twenty minutes later, it's like nothing happened. Eventually, I had to I texted her. I was like, "You realize you come home and yell at me like." You've come home and yelled at me at least once every past couple of weeks. And she, she went off on, she sent me like text, just text after text about all the horrible things I've done to her. No one's ever treated her as horrible as me and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I, I brought up what it was like for me being her, her kid. And she was, and she all just went into, Oh, she started crying and shaking her head at me. It's like, you're crazy. You're crazy. Like for me, for me, I have this crazy kid. And that's the type of shit she did to me as a kid too. So, and I realize now I have my whole life is as far as interacting with people go, it's just all been fantasy. Just kind of, I have these hopes and expectations of people and they're just not real. It's not, has nothing to do with the actual person I'm dealing with. And then, I'm surprised or hurt when they, when they are themselves. And I'm just now about to be 32 and I'm just now starting to figure that out. So it's, I'm, uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's, you, uh, you, you're feeling around people's personalities for an input jack. That's all. Is there an input jack here? Does any, does anything go in or is it just, you're just the speakers with no input? And uh, that is a very essential aspect of remaining sane in the world. First, you look for the input jack, and then you look for the virtue amp, <laughs> or so to speak, right? So, um, I, you know, I mean, I'm obviously, it's absolutely heartbreaking what's happening to these kids. And um, if you can explore any ways to, to help them for the better. But if you can appeal 
to the parent and you can't bring in any outside agency to secure a better life for these kids. I'm afraid, uh, in my opinion, again, this is just my opinion. This is not a moral rule, but um, I've already come. You get sanded down. Yeah, you get sanded down when you're with abrasive people. You just do. Yeah, I've already come to that conclusion. I don't. I don't. At this point, I think I'm doing more harm than good just by being here. I'm showing them. Yeah, this is how. This is how moms treat their kids. This is how people treat each other in relationships. You yell and scream at them to get them what you want. Like, and I think I could do so much better just not being here at all. I'm just seeing them. Well, you're teaching the children that uh, evil people yeah. rule. Good people are exactly. helpless and evil people rule. That's all you're teaching them at yeah. this point. I mean, not only if I were to stand up for myself completely, it would turn into a full-on psychopathic, like, physical attack. Like, she will... She's capable of pretty much anything. If I were to, I mean, she, I, I told her I was moving out and she evicted me a few days later because I, of something I was standing, I was protecting one of the kids in the instance. And because of that, she, that's the only thing she had left because, so she yeah. went with that. Well, I can certainly hear, and I got to move on to the next caller, but I can certainly hear how much of the end of your rope yeah. you're at. And I appreciate you calling in so that people can get uh, a sense of this. Um, if you listen to your own instincts uh, deep down, they will tell you when it's time to pull the ripcord and take your chances with the parachute uh, because the plane is just heading into the mountain either way. I think way. that's so, one of the things uh, I, I really wanted, appreciate you want to that. share is that it, people really will people will do whatever is convenient for them. And they do not – like you just – so many people, even on the forums and chat room and just people I talk to, they just live in this fantasy world where they they love their mom, they love their dad, they love all these people. But if you really stand up for yourself and are really yourself, they will not hesitate to destroy you. And my, I have this huge family, and they've all just kind of watched this happen. Nobody's, nobody will do anything. So... No, no, I'm incredibly sorry for that. Look, I mean, yeah, it's uh, if you if you want to find out how much evil there is in the world, just try standing, just try defining evil and criticizing it, and you will very, very quickly see just how prevalent evil is in the world. And this is one of the reasons why people don't want to judge and don't want to be judged. It's like I don't want to find out that I'm living in a minefield of conformity to immorality. I mean, I just, I'd rather go through the matrix, the illusion that I'm around nice people who give money to the homeless and who uh, pray for the sick and who take care of their elderly parents and so on. But, oh my God, uh, if, if you ever want to find out the prevalence of evil, if you ever want to switch the light on and see how many cockroaches there are in the kitchen, simply define evil and act against it. Ooh, boy, will you have an exciting time uh, finding out just how much evil there is in the world and how many enablers of evil and cowards and conformists to evil there is in the world. Uh, it is sometimes it feels like you're, you're poking a, uh, a beaver and it turns out that after it pulls its house out of the earth, you're facing smog himself, some giant ass dragon. And um, yeah, just define what is evil. Evil is violations of the non-aggression principle and we should act against those who consciously and knowingly violate the non-aggression principle. That's it for this show. Evil is violation of the non-aggression principle. We should act against those who knowingly violate the non-aggression principle. 
Krakatoa erupts, which is why nobody wants to define evil. Because then it's like, oh, shit. Really? That many? That many people are either evil or supporters of evil? I didn't want to know that. Knowledge be gone. Knowledge be gone. Exorcism. Ah! I need to sneeze, fart that out of my system <laughs> like deli belly. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, that's and, – and people who don't take – like I had this relativist on a couple of shows ago who's like, well, you know, what's wrong with – you know, how, why would people even be bothered by moral condemnation? It's like, you ever tried it? <laughs> you ever tried pulling it in on that grenade? I mean, anyone who doubts the power of ethics uh, just tells me they've never tried to be ethical. That's all that ha all people are confessing, you know. Well, why would evil people even care about your ethical statement? Have you tried it? <laughs> then you won't have to worry about whether it happens uh, with any power or depth or efficacy. So you have uh, obviously um, got a moral standard and you're applying it around you and your life is changing irrevocably. And uh, it is amazing. I mean, it took me a long time to adjust to that basic reality that you think you're, uh, you know, it's like in the Matrix. You're thinking you're fighting one guy and then they just replicate and it's mostly everyone. <laughs> it's like, wow, wow. No wonder Socrates said, thank you for the hemlock, right? Yeah, that's what Socrates said after, like just before he took the hemlock, he said, sacrifice a chicken to this, well, I can't remember, some deity. And it turns out that that's what you do when you're given a gift. Right, so after he was voted to be killed, he's like, I will take this hemlock, thank you very much, because I live in hell now. I'll take my chances with hell in an afterlife, right? Well, I enjoyed the call, and uh, just to add on to what we're talking about, you talked to just talk to people that random people, whoever it is you're talking to and mention your struggles with virtue and you'll, they'll let you know very quickly where they stand. Cause talk, just talking about this um, situation, it's, it's so fucking sick. How, how quick people are to like jump to my mom's to be on her side and to try to like brush it off. And, and then there's the other people who are like, you know, really blown away by it and sympathize and listen to what I'm saying. And, you know, about 90% of people, if not more are quick to jump in and stab you right in the wound and just say, Oh, you know, she's just being a mom and, Oh, you got to help your mom. It's just whatever excuse they can come up with. So people tell you exactly who they oh, are. Oh yeah, no, and, 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 and they're so ridiculously hypocritical. Yeah. You're so judgmental, Steph. It's like, yeah. what? Won't you just be judgmental? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you're so arrogant. It's like, when you asserting things without any argument or evidence, isn't that kind of arrogant, you douchebags? I mean, <laughs> you got mommy issues. It's like, that's not an argument. And by the way, have you talked to feminists about their daddy issues? No, didn't think so, did you? Because Free Domain Radio is one of the first moral movements to threaten the interests of women. Oh! <gasps> So it's a little different than the ones that came before. So, uh, yeah, it is um, It is horrible to see just 
bringing ethics up with people is like they just they just pull off this rubber mask and underneath there are these like horrifying vampiric insect people. That is uh, the reality of what you experience. And I, I say this from the vantage point of having talked about ethics with people for 31 years. I'm going to be 48 in eight days. No, seven days in a week. I'm going to be 48 years old, 32 years. Been talking to people about ethics. Seven or eight years I've been doing this conversation. I think I have a pretty unique standpoint. Unique even in history because of the, the internet. And um, I just really want to reassure people, if you think you're alone, you're not alone in that. It's real. It's real. When you bring ethics to the forefront, you reveal the most revolting aspects of the human race and it seems to be omnipresent. You see people siding with abusers. You see people attacking the virtuous. You see people betraying their most stated and virulent and vehement moral goals. We care only about the children. We don't like domestic abuse. Well, we promote, we, we, we think that single moms are great. They broke up families, but they're heroic. Well, you know, adult victims of child abuse don't need to spend time with their abusive parents. Ah, evil guy. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Do you even listen to yourself? That's what you want to say to humanity. They want to walk around with a tape recorder and say, hey, let me just play you back. What you wrote, what you said. Let me just let me just play it back to you. And let's just spend 10 minutes going over how insane you are. Or how unbelievably offensive you are. Or how hypocritical you are. But people simply use words to piss on whatever growing fires of virtue will illuminate their own dark shadows. That's all they do. Words are weapons. Sharpen the knives. That's the, as the late Michael Hutchins had it. It is, um, it is horrendous. The view of humanity you get. When you shoot up the flare of virtue and realize the reptilian, horrendous, venom-fanged insectoids that surround you, you have to hold your nose and with a strong stomach say we must blow past these vermin and build a future where human beings can grow up to be something other than vile hypocrites. It is for the future that we shoot up this flare because all it does is attract the airbound spit venom of the broken at the moment. That's pretty fucking awesome. I agree with that completely. And just like to say, it's the best call I've ever been a part of. So you can go ahead, move on to the next caller. I, I mean, it's, I think the, m- the main reason I wanted to, at, at this point, be a part of this call is just like you said, just to feel like you're not alone because, you know, you talk to so many people and you get the reaction we're talking about and you, especially this situation. And now you start to feel like it's easy to feel like you're the only, only one with any sense any conscience or virtue. So it's great to hear what you have to say. No, thanks. And keep us posted how it goes. Mike, did we get anything on our, uh, 
aged cases. Oh, uh, we did. There's something in the Bronx, apparently. I'll just read through it real quick. The state court system has a guideline that requires most felony cases to go to trial and be resolved within 180 days of the suspect's indictment. Well, criminal courts in every borough in New York City violate the guideline. In the Bronx, the city's poorest borough, 73% of all felony cases exceeded the 180-day limit as of January. Uh, in recent years, there are more defendants waiting in jail for years for their trials in the Bronx than the rest of the boroughs combined. The Bar- Bronx accounted for more than half of the cases in the city's criminal courts. They were more than two years old, and for two-thirds of people held for more than five years awaiting trial. <laughs> held for more than five years awaiting trial. Yes, wherein you may be, of course, found completely innocent. Uh, and then, of course, if you want, you can roll your dice and try and get restitution for those five years, although it's not illegal, I assume, to hold people pending trial. And what are the, uh, how many people are going to jail for violating the 180 days, which is a ridiculous enough amount of time to begin uh, with? Oh, that would be zero. That would be a big goose egg. Right. And so this is the poor, the poorest of the poor, uh, which was the original caller's issue, right? What happens to the poorest of the poor who can't afford legal representation? Well, uh, I'd say the best thing to do in a free society would be to throw a good number of them in jail for five years awaiting trial. And what would people say? That's horrendous. It's like, well, that's what we got, asshole. (laughs) All right. Well, up next is Chris E. And Chris wrote in and said, is it possible to be a good educator in government schools, such as working with a group of children who need a good male role model? Uh, I don't know. Or why do you want to be in a government school? Well, uh, I, I'm I'm in a government school. I uh, I, I got a I got a contract uh, many years ago before I, I found um, before I even thought of philosophy. Really, I I thought I was doing something um, right with my life. Uh, I I had a calling, I guess, to go into education, and and I ended up getting a contract. Um, through constant education and whatnot and self-knowledge, uh, I've come to a, a kind of a new place and, and wondering what I'm doing in the public school system and if I'm actually being effective as a, as a teacher anymore. Well, are you? Um, I think... Yeah. And what does being effective as a teacher See, mean? Yeah, that's. I think that's a, that's a good place to start. Um, uh, effective would be teaching kids or helping kids come to an ability to think for themselves and um, and and reason and and be self learners and and be inspired to, you know, um, to to pick up. Jeez, uh, I don't. I'm a little nervous. I might take a little bit of a breather here. <laughs> um, I'm not 100% sure. Well, a little tough yeah, to... Yeah, it's a uh, little tough to define. A little tough to measure yourself relative to something you're not sure about, right? That's correct. Yeah, 100%. Um, well, I guess, you know, as a, as a, as a school teacher, I've been, I've been wanting to make an impact on... on children's lives and i got to a point okay yeah, okay i yeah, gotta, I gotta stop you right there 
Because you're starting to sound like some educational brochure. The important thing is to have an impact on children's lives. Hey, an asteroid has an impact on people's lives, but we don't give it tenure, right? right. So impact, positive, role model, what what does this mean, right? Um, How would you judge yourself as a successful teacher? I guess having the kids come back and and tell me that they got something they they understood they they but come back when come back come when? back after they've graduated after they've been successful after they've been able to pull themselves out of a bad situation I th- I think I think if we t- um wait wait hang on hang on hang on hang on so you want to teach children to think rationally and critically that's right? correct yes. How long do you think it will take for them to thank you for that? Reason, like reasonably. Um, reasonably, um, I I don't have an answer for that. I don't know how long it would take. Okay. Um, when you teach kids to think reasonably and rationally, and you're not their parent. What happens if they go home and they start to think reasonably and rationally about religion in yeah. the home? Or the state, or wars, or taxation, or the very educational system that their parents are coerced to fund, right? Yes. Or the national debt, or fiat currency, or ethics, or conformity, or you name it, mm-hmm. right? It would... How long do you think it will take for the children to appreciate the gift of reason that you have given them? See, that's um, that's a that's a fantastic point. Um, so, I work with a lot of at-risk youth, um, and abused, abused youth, yeah, abused youth, completely abused, and I've been. Yeah, you have to say at risk like there's some third dice rolling party that's causing the problems as to say victims of parental child abuse group, because that would probably be too. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm using I'm using the jargon that I'm I've been brainwashed to use, obviously. Don't jargon me, bro. Don't jargon me, bro. Um, So, yeah, I, I work with abused kids. I work with kids that come to school not fed. I work with kids that come to school not fully closed properly. I come to school and I work with children whose parents have beaten them earlier in the day. And the number of times I call CAS is horrendous. And I feel like I'm fighting a fucking war in this school sometimes. And I come home and I'm just exhausted at the end of the day. And I just, I get up the next day and I get in there and I, you know, I I strap into it and I feel like if I was to eject myself from this right now, I'm opening up a vacuum for a teacher that doesn't really care to get in there. Okay, hold on, slow down, slow down. Uh, first of all, I hugely sympathize what, uh, with your dedication, with your, your concern and care for the kids. Got a couple of questions. Yep. So What's your fuck you quotient for the day? How many times a day do you get told to fuck yourself? I never get told to fuck myself by the students. Oh, never, good. Okay. It never happens. Good. All right. It never happens. Um, good. Right. I, I'm the only male teacher in the school. Not saying that that's a matter, really. Um, but 
I I run a few social emotional social emotional programs. I basically I have boys come in and we sit around and chat, eat lunch together, and 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 we talk. Um, and I feel like I've built a really good rapport of trust with these kids, and there's honesty always. And I don't. I'm not the best teacher in the world when it comes to the board standards. Um, I don't really follow them very well. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so are you trying to say to an anarchist that you don't follow government rules and that's somehow an impediment to your excellence? No, no, I'm... (laughs) I I think you may not have... Who did you call exactly? Because you may be a number off in your diet. Well, that's... I, I, I say that just because... I've I've gotten into a little bit of trouble over the past couple of years being called on. Um, not, no, no, a little bit of trouble means you're not being a very good anarchist. <laughs> you know, I've been I've been in a lot of trouble. All right, so um, I, yeah, no, good. You know, because people are like, oh, you got into trouble with your authority figure, bad anarchist. Right. It's like, well, I guess you've been the kind of anarchist that no one in authority has any problems with. Good boy. Yeah. All right. Um, and what's the racial composition of your classes? Um, it's predominantly white. Um, right. I work in a... And is school. it a lot of single moms? It kids? is single moms. The school is connected, uh, well, it's neighbors to a, um, a social housing program, uh, projects block, basically. Um, I'm working with kids, a lot of them, you know, their fathers are in prison, uh, I hear that all the time that uh, they got to go to the prison and visit their dad over the weekend. Um, that's always a fun story to hear. Uh, I, I, yay, moms! Yay, Good right? job. Good sperm donor. Um, I hear. I, I hear all the time. I hear these women talk outside picking up their children. Um, and uh, for last last week, there was a woman who was talking about. How the fact she just had another child and she was really looking forward to the the increased child allowance that was coming in because because it oh, was yeah. going to help her with some bills that she wasn't meeting. Yeah, I mean, we've got this completely bias-ackwards economic universe where children are not a liability but an asset because of the forced redistribution of income. I mean, it's completely insane. That's right. Um and so dysgenic. But anyway, okay, so... so um, my question, I guess, would be, I'm, I'm in it right now. What do I do if this is something that I want to fight? If what? What, is, what do you want to fight? It, or what might you want to well, fight? Well, I, I, I want to fight. I want to, I, want to, I want to help these kids build a voice for themselves. I want these kids to. No, no, no! You just you just jargon to me again. You again. Shit, build shit. A, build a voice for themselves. <laughs> yeah. No. What is that program, Microsoft Sam? To... <laughs> okay. Um, um, I want these. So no, I. You, it's, the moment you slip into jargon is where I become concerned. That's okay. Right? I, and call me on it every time. Um, yes, right. I want to do virtue by use the force, Luke. No, no, that last part <laughs> might be a little confusing, right? Yeah. Um, now I want I want these kids out of the situation. I feel like I... What situation? The abuse. I feel... Well, you can't... I mean, other than calling... You call CPS, right? Because I guess you have a mandate to, right? You have to, right? Oh, I have to, but I... uh, There's... And how does... uh, Sorry to interrupt. How does CPS do, in your opinion? Uh, They do a terrible job. I I think they're... uh, I think they're a horrible 
organization that it just completely drops the ball on the majority of situations. I've called so many times and I always ask for a follow-up. I get a follow-up maybe 50 to 60% of the time. And a lot of the a lot of the situations is they go in, they have an interview, and there's no intervening whatsoever. And there's no, you know, support given to these families in in any aspect whatsoever. Does um do the kids know that you've called CBS? Um a few of them, yeah, definitely. Definitely. There was a And are you able to be honest with the kids about your opinion of CPS? Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely I can. Uh, there was a situation. Okay, so you, um, you, 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 you call CPS and you say to the kids, CPS came to your house, I think they're terrible. I think they suck. And they say, well, why did you call them? And say, well, I have to follow the rules, right? I have to do things which I consider destructive to your family because I have to follow the rules, That's right? right? Um, how do you think the kids process that? Uh, there's every time I've called, I, I feel like I'm doing something bad for that kid and I'm causing more strife in that. You just not answered my question, right? How did, how did the kids process it? The kids process it by losing trust in me. I feel they lose trust in me. Either you say, I called CPS and that's the best thing to do, in which case the kids having experienced CPS probably don't agree, or you say, well, I called CPS because it's the worst, well, it's a terrible thing to do, but I have to obey the rules. Even though, So the rules are compelling me to do that, which is against my conscience, but I have to obey the rules, right? Mm-hmm. So, see, you, you're looking at what you say, but the kids are internalizing what you do, right? That's right. So, and if you can't find a way to act in a moral manner in the environment, I'm not saying you can or you can, but if, if you can't find a way to act in a moral manner, in a consistently moral manner within the environment, that's part of what is communicated and a m- pretty important part of what is communicated to the kids. Unless you can explicitly say, I call CPS, it's almost always a disaster, almost always destructive to the family and destructive to you, but I have to obey the rules because I'm hoping I can do more good than ill in this corrupt environment. Mm-hmm. You probably can't really have that conversation, right? No. No, I definitely can't have that conversation. Because what if the kids then get called into the principal office and say, well... Joe, free domain radio listener teacher, says this whole environment is corrupt. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm, I feel like I'm in a tricky situation. I'm, 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 I'm at a loss. I, I guess that's why I've, I've called in. I, I've, I've kind of hit a wall on, on what I can do in, in this position as an educator. I hope that I'm, doing some good, but I'm obviously not able to really fully measure that. So. You started the call by saying I had a calling to teach. Yeah. 
What does that mean? That's jargony. That is jargony. Right? Um, I was one of those lost kids who ended up with a fine arts degree. And um, I started teaching private music lessons when I was a lot younger. And I really loved teaching music lessons. I absolutely loved working with the kids. And I continued doing that. And I thought the logical place to go after that was to work as a, as a music educator in, in the public school system. So I... Wait, wait, wait. Why, why the public school system? Uh, I felt like I could get to more children. Um, but at the same point, um, it was a secure job with a secure um, benefits package. I realize all of that now. Um, secure secure job. Not, not quite a calling. Not quite a calling. Right? No, it was, it, not, not quite a no, calling, it was, then, right? I felt, core, I felt called to enjoy job security and a great benefits package. Right, yeah. It's like I felt called to cash in my winning lottery ticket because it's a mission of virtue, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, teachers, they say that kind of stuff and it's designed – I'm not saying you're doing consciously, right? It's designed to kind of frame the discussion like you're heroic. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I, I think you – I think I just had like an aha moment there with with that and – I think I wanted to start off this conversation by pinning myself up as somebody that was doing something heroic, but there's definitely that piece of it that when I got into the job, I wanted that paycheck. I wanted that contract that I could guarantee myself a paycheck for life. Right. And how are the summers off treating (laughs) you? I'm... I'm definitely one of the teachers that would be in the camp of of not having summers off. I don't agree. I, I, well, I, I don't agree with summers off. Uh, the kids slip massively, and um, I no, no. But you have summers off, well, right? Yeah, no, I do have summers off. I mean, you, you don't go in and yell at empty classrooms. I, <laughs> no, assume, right? I, I, I don't yell at classrooms. Period. Um, but no, no, I know. But you know what I mean. Like you still have the summers off, right? Whether you agree no, I do or not, have right? summers off. All right. And it's pretty nice, right? I mean, it's summer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've worked the past 6 summers. I I take on part-time jobs in the summertime. I don't uh so you get more money. Yeah. Now, you know, of course, as as I'm sure, I mean, the reason why I find teachers self-praise a little precious is that I'm not saying this is true of you, but in general, Teachers are idiots. They're, they're, they're at the low end of the SAT scores. They're at the low end of achievement, right? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, I feel... Right? And so, and, 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 and so it's like it's the dumbest among us that we put in charge of our kids, of those who have the capacity to complete the educational degree, right? And again, I'm, I'm not saying this is true for all teachers, but in general, if you're not very good at pushing ideas around your wetware... You want to be given a room full of kids to instruct. It seems ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Of course it's ridiculous, but of course it's the government. So we get the exact opposite of what any rational society would yeah, want. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, in Michigan, they found that only, I think, 20% of the teachers could pass 
or the potential teachers could pass the teacher's exam. So naturally, they did the intelligent thing and vastly lowered the standards because, you know, the kids are worth it, right? And of course, teachers are continually saying, well, <laughs> we're not praised, you know, we don't, it's a, it's a thankless profession, you know. I think Ann Coulter pointed out, <laughs> do a search for uh, teachers' awards and you get like 8 billion hits. <laughs> I mean, the amount of self-praise that goes on. And it, it's a calling and I, the, the kids and it's like, it's mostly a place where stupid people go so they can't get fired. Yes, I I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I don't count myself among the stupid people. Um, no, I don't. No, and I again, I, I you are you are a very tall Chinese basketball player. <laughs> I absolutely accept and fully understand that you are uh, you are there, and you know every bell curve has its blips, mm-hmm. right? But um, but uh, but you still felt it necessary to put yourself forward as someone who had a calling when teachers are very teachers make more money than almost every like per hour of work. Teachers make more money than virtually every other profession except lawyers and doctors. They make more than engineers. They make more than architects. They I mean, you name it. They, they just make a massive. And then it's like, oh, well, it's a self-sacrificial calling. Really? I don't think yeah, so, because <laughs> that usually doesn't come with a staggeringly high paycheck plus eternal yeah, job right? security. And my board's going in for a strike vote uh, next week, which is incredibly frustrating. So, yeah, which is like, okay, fine, then just you're in it for the money, then you don't give a shit about the kids. I get it. Okay, and then just be honest. No, it's about the yeah. kids. Really? Aren't the kids being hurt by, hurt by your excessive pay totally. demands? It, well. No, it's about the money. Okay, then it's not about the kids. No, it's for the kids. It's like, oh, my God, forget it. I can't believe you people are teaching oh, totally. your lines. Actually, I can And then can. try being the teacher that votes no on the strike vote or crosses the picket line. Oh, yeah, that'll oh, be yeah, fun. No. Yeah, because, because the Donnie Kruger is in full effect and the teachers think they're brilliant because they're too dumb to know how dumb yeah, they are. Definitely. <laughs> there was a few. In general, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right? Okay. Two years back, there was a, uh, a work to rule thing. And I'm a, I'm a music teacher. Like the, I'm in there. I want to I want to play some I want to play some tunes with these kids, right? And there was a work to rule thing, and I ran my clubs anyway. And I took a lot of heat from the teachers in the school and the union. And they forced mm. me to stop. It was a full on like I was paying penalties. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it bothers the shit out of me when teachers say that they're underpaid. Yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, great. Then let's privatize the schools, and you can get all the money and all the value that the children and their parents voluntarily want to give you. Because if the government's underpaying you, let's release you into the free market so you can get your full amount of money's worth. Like if Brad Pitt is in the Soviet theater troupe and he feels he's underpaid. I got it. Let's open it up to the free market and you go make 10 or $20 million film. If you're Tom Cruise in the back end of the chorus line in an off-Broadway production because it's being run by the government, I get it. You're underpaid. You could be an action hero with abs to die for. Let's release you into the free market and you can make 10 or $20 million of film. And teachers say, we're underpaid. I'm like, great. 
Let's get you out into the free market so you can make all that money you feel that you deserve because you're such great teachers. Let's unshackle you from this horrible price ceiling called the government and set you free into the free market so you can go and scoop all of the money out of the grateful parents' pockets for the massive amount of beneficial brain cells you're dropping into their children's craniums. And they're like, what, free market? Fuck no. I don't want to go. No. God, no. Don't put me out there. I'll discover my true worth. No. Mm. Well, anyway. But I, I, I agree with you that the majority of teachers are overpaid. And those are the teachers that show up for their six hours of working and, and take their full amount of breaks and, and their prep times to surf Facebook and, and, and dick around because that happens. I see it all the time. I, uh, you know, I even knew a teacher once that would, on video game release day, would take a sick day so he could stay home and play a brand new video game. You know, Which was probably entirely for the benefit of his children. Right. For, for the kids he was teaching, they probably learned more when he was uh, fragging aliens than when he was actually in the classroom, given the 20,000 year monotony. Right. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I go in. I'm in there at seven o'clock. School starts at nine. I'm in there at seven o'clock. I help with the, you know, putting together all the breakfast program, um, uh, putting together the food, serving food to 80 kids. Then I get onslaught of children through my room on my prep i got kids in my room practicing on my on recesses and all that stuff kids are constantly in my room at the end of the day i'm spending another couple hours working on shit then i go home and work on more prep and and making sure that i'm commenting and and making as as much inroads as i possibly can with with these kids to to let okay so so listen but what you're telling me is that you're a great teacher and I have no, no reason to disbelieve mm-hmm. you. I, I'm, I'm willing like, – obviously, I can't verify yeah. any of this, but I'm going to completely believe you. You are a great teacher. So, right? you know, I've looked into that Sudbury school system. Hang yep. on, hang on, hang on, hang on. My, my fault. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I know teachers are used to talking, but hang on a sec. So you will make more money in a private school. Or you can do a podcast and video series on how children should think critically, how they can learn. You can make a fortune. And you can reach kids all over the world permanently. And you can take that money that you're making in the free market. You can hire animators to make it even more engaging. With all that money, you could even make a film or a TV series or start your own school. Because if you're a great teacher, and I believe that you are, you're dedicated, you're hardworking, you're really concerned about the kids. And I'm not saying this cynically. I genuinely believe that that is the case. Then the government is a complete mismatch for you. Because your skills, capacities, dedication, and empathy to the children... could be far more powerful if you weren't only talking to 20 or 30 or 35 kids at a time but play for mankind as the reggae song says right yeah yeah i'm you're never gonna do that right (laughs) i i i know 
I mean, I know we're having a very academic discussion. You're not quitting the the, the school, right? No, I, you know, last. No, I've been I've been really I've been really waffling on that. Um, hey, look, it's a lot to give up. I get it. I get it. I mean, I was making one hundred sixty thousand bucks a year, plus benefits, plus you know, blah blah blah. When I quit, yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard, hard to give up. I mean, and that was a career I'd invested God knows how many years into. And I was heading into podcasting, no experience, no no business model, no investors. It's hard. It's really hard to figure out how can I best serve mm. the world, right? How can I best serve the world? But it's important. It is. Uh, it is. So how do you how do you make that transition? How do you get out? It's... It's not as easy. Well, no, that, well, really, it's, it's not as easy as, as just ripping off a bandaid and throwing your resignation in. And oh no, it's that easy. You you quit. Mike, you want to want to chime in about any of this? Well, Mike, of course, we rescued him <laughs> from a situation of. Um, so when we first met Mike, he was stitching together <laughs> Nike shoes in a Singaporean yeah. sub basement. Chained to a wall uh, with birds that pecked his eyeballs uh, oh, every birds, time he didn't make at least nineteen oh, shoots a minute. <laughs> oh, sorry. And and every time Mike does something wrong, we say, <laughs> and his eyes immediately jump out of his head. No, Mike. Uh, he's saying, "How do you do it, Mike? What what are you, what are your thoughts?" Well, I went from a, a job where I had two months of paid vacation, and uh, I worked for a hospital system, so I had the most amazing and immaculate medical benefits anyone could ever hope for. Mike. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you seriously believe it? I mean, do you really, do you really want to take advice from a guy who quit that kind of sweet gig? Yeah, no, Mike, lay it on me, please, because I've, I've been trying to work it out in my head. How did you do it? Well... I wasn't happy. I'm not happy either. I was miserable doing what I was doing before. And I was working around a lot of people who were even more miserable than me because they'd been doing it for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. I'd see the people dragging themselves in every day. You know, the lifers, the people that said, oh, this will be a fun summer job and then got roped in because of the excellent perks and benefits. And yeah, before the, you the know people... it, they blinked and, you know, two decades went by. And now yeah, they're the, 45 the or something, you know? Totally, totally. Yeah, the people that come in on Monday and be like, five more days. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, nothing that can people. sap your energy, strength, and will to live more than the people that the second you walk in the door are like, oh, my God. It's a, I got a case of the Mondays, you know? God. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was just miserable. I was miserable doing it. I mean, don't get me wrong. The money was good doing what I was doing and the benefits and time off. All that stuff was great. Got to do a lot of traveling while I worked at that job because of the time off. Mm -hmm. But the cost of going there every single day, it wasn't just the eight hours that I'd put it on a daily basis. I had to go be around some pretty toxic people in toxic situations and deal with really nasty individuals so I'd come home and I was dissociated and just, oh, so when I came home, it took me a couple hours to kind of shake it off to the mm-hmm. point where, you know, I come home to my wife and 
it takes me a while to connect with her. It takes me a while to connect with my friends or actually start resuming my life after going to this terrible place. And uh, in the hours before going, I would have the full dread on. I couldn't like, oh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now because the looming sort of Damocles was hanging over my head. Oh, great. I have to go back to this shitty place and trade, you know, pain and suffering in some ways for money. And I was just miserable doing it. And I could have, I mean, don't get me wrong, it would have been easier in many ways for me to stay. I mean, so many people do it. There's not many people that say, hey, I'm going to quit this comfortable, safe job where my likelihood of getting fired is nil and I could stay here until I die uh, and make a good paycheck. There's not a lot of people that stay in that quote-unquote safe job and say, hey, I'm going to pursue a passion or I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something that actually excites me, that motivates me. And a question that Steph has asked on the show quite a few times is, how can I best serve the world? And I knew with me, it's an interesting question, I knew with me a damn sure wasn't trading suffering for money and going to a place I hated for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. I knew I had a whole lot more to offer the world. And a perspective that I always used to uh, really make any major decision in my life was looking at things from the deathbed back. You know, okay, I'm... I am in that deathbed. I got a couple hours left. Will I be happy how I spent my time and spent my life? Will I be thrilled with that? Will I go to my grave knowing I made a goddamn impact? I had a positive impression on the world. I'm happy with how I spent my time. I'm happy with what I did. Or will I go, shit, (laughs) I did what now? I spent how many years? What kind of people do I have around me? Do I have excited, motivated, passionate people that are doing stuff that they're really enthusiastic about? Or do I have people around me that go, oh, five more days to the weekend? <laughs> now it's like, what's a weekend? <laughs> I, I don't know the last day I took off, but I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I mean, like, when you're doing something that you enjoy doing, it's, uh, you know, sometimes forcing yourself to take a day off here or there is a bit more of a challenge than actually working, but... Yeah. I mentioned one other thing, too, as well, um, not not to diss Mike's planning abilities, but Mike quits his job in February to join Free Domain Radio. Come April, the head of Free Domain Radio greets him with the glorious phrase, I have cancer. I could be dead in three months. Uh, thanks for joining the ship. Last ride on the Titanic. So, yeah, Mike's had a pretty exciting a time of it. And Mike has complete job security because um, he didn't run screaming back to the hospital and beg <laughs> yeah. and weep and hump the leg of the uh, hiring manager to get his job back. And so Mike has uh, a permanent tenure. Uh, Mike could literally set fire to me. And I'd be like, well, we'll maybe mark that down in your performance review, but uh, you don't even go to a rubber room. Here's another mm-hmm. leg. So, And uh, Stoyan wanted to, to mention something. Now, for those who don't know Stoyan's background, Stoyan could actually be making some real money. I mean, he's really well-educated, incredibly smart guy. And um, Stoyan, what the hell's wrong with you? What the hell are you doing here? It would help if I add him to the call if he wants to talk. (laughs) It's because Steph is so sexy that I couldn't say no. Wait, that was like the worst Stoyan impersonation. I'm adding him in. I just don't know. Adding in the Stoyan. Yeah. This is the first time we're going to hear from Stoyan's voice on the on the podcast. You said, 
Yes. Now he basically Hi. has one of those smoking. Uh, hello. <laughs> he has one. Of, hello, my name is Doyen. Don't smoke. <laughs> what about you, do? Well, hello, yeah. Doyen. Hello. I just wanted to share my experience because it was it was a difficult decision for me, and ultimately it came down to what would people a thousand years from now want me to do? Would they want me to go for the comfort? And comfort is nice. Don't get me wrong, I've been comfortable in the past, and generally speaking, it doesn't last. Maybe five to six years, sometimes more. Mm-hmm. But when you look back, as Mike said, when you look back from your deathbed, are you going to regret it? Are you going to regret being comfortable instead of doing something meaningful? And uh, that pushed me, and uh, I pretty much I quit a job that if I if I'm really good and I was good. I could make six figures easily. If I wanted to take more responsibility, I would make even more and I'd be able to travel around the world, around the world work with very creative people. But yeah. uh, I decided, well, do I want to do that in the long run? How would that benefit? How would that benefit the world? And for me, the decision then became pretty easy. So... Well, and sorry, just just to be fair and clarify, so Stoyan isn't—he's still making six figures. They're just on the other side of the decimal point. So, yeah. just so everyone like understands what that means. Yeah. Uh, also, it was tough for him to get a job with Mike and I showing up making chicken noises every time during the interview. <laughs> so that obviously became <laughs> the birds yeah, are back. Yeah. Sorry, but uh, so but Stoyan, because you originally wanted—I know you wanted to work for FDR, but you were originally. Um, like you wanted to work for a couple of years and, and all that. I know we've talked about that, but I don't know if you could share what accelerated that for you. Yeah, I initially wanted to spend at least five years in the workforce and uh, save up some money, uh, find a place, stable job. And what pushed me was just seeing how difficult it was for Mike and how much work there is to do and really how necessary it is to do the work seeing how the direction in, in which the world is going. And mm-hmm. those five years, what could happen in those five years? What could I be doing in those five years? And I decided that it wasn't worth it. It, it was a bit riskier, actually a lot riskier in some ways. But in the long run, I think it's it's the best decision I could have, I could have made. Yeah. I mean, yeah. let's put it this way. In just... Two months. Actually, let's limit that even more. In one month, we did we did two two point six million views. How many of those were new people? People like who just had their first exposure to FDR in a crucial time in history with the coming collapse of the economy and uh, just trading trading that for some security. I mean, I can live with that. I can live with that. Mm-hmm. I, I've got to do it. I've I've been on the fence for two years, um, especially since I've been getting in a lot of trouble with administration for not following the rules. And I'm following what I feel is is right. And I'm not. I'm spinning my wheels, and I'm not happy. And I don't enjoy the conversations that happen in the staff room and I I don't know I don't know what I'm doing in this building. I feel like 
these kids deserve good education, but I'm really not delivering because the system isn't allowing me to deliver the way that I, the way that I know education can be, can be brought to, to kids and, and kids could benefit from, you know, understanding the world. The I way want to ask you, I, I understand where you're going, but I want to ask you a question. How comfortable are you yeah. with uh, fear and uncertainty? Uh, he's a musician. I'm, a musician. I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with fear. I've definitely done my, uh, my time in living in cars. <laughs> so, um, fear and uncertainty is, is, is a world that I've, I, I've known quite well. Do you think you'll be going that, uh, back to that if uh, you quit your job? Uh, 100%. 100% I'd be going back to fear and uncertainty. But when I was in the fear and uncertainty world as a musician, man alive, I worked my ass off. You know? Um, I worked my ass off more than I'm working my ass off now. Were you feeling more invigorated? Yeah. Back then? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I felt alive. Every day, I felt alive. You felt it, alive. Even, right. I felt alive even though sometimes feeling alive is, is feeling intense amounts of pain uh, and, and, and terror. But Does that was, mean that you're not feeling alive right now in your current job? In my current career job in, in, the, in the public education system, I do not feel alive. I do not. And feel how like long do you think you're going to last before that fire in you gets extinguished? I've, I've the fire. The fire is extinguished. I, I, I'm fully aware of that, and I'm, I'm trying to fan the flame as hard as I possibly can to get it relit. But, um, it's it's out. In in right. that world, but the experience that I've gained from this has taught me a huge amount that I feel I can. I can work with. I have human capital, and I'm not willing to throw that human capital away. I'm also not willing to go back to the world of being a professional musician. I want nothing to do with, with that world. I, I, I enjoy playing music, but that's not, that doesn't do anything for, for me. It doesn't do anything for the world. Right. And there's also something else that I, initially when I had my conversation with Mike, this came up. And uh, it was around the fact that I was very keenly aware that if I would, if I were to spend five or ten years in the uh, direction in which I was heading, I would become resentful, and that resentment would poison everything I do. So yeah. in a way, I also protected myself by not going there. So do you think you've reached that phase yet? I have. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely have. I'm I'm Your voice I, broke up a little bit. I, I'm sorry. I'm No no, that's <laughs> that's perfectly fine. I'm curious how are you feeling right now? Uh, I I um, I'm feeling afraid. I'm, 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 I'm feeling afraid because I know that 
there's got to be some sort of action after this conversation. And that action is going to put me in a world of uncertainty. And I want to immediately start planning a, a safety net. What I'm going to do. But I don't know if that's the right way to go. And, and that's, the, that's where the fear is. Does that uncertainty seems, seem familiar? And I'm not talking about your uh, career as a musician way back. Have you experienced this before? The uncertainty? Yeah, my yeah. entire youth? My entire youth. My entire youth. I've, I've, done, I've done a lot of therapy work. Um, and I've, I've, uh, I've been seeing a therapist for a, uh, for a long while. And I've done a lot of work with... Um, you know, prior abuses that I went through as a kid. Um, my ACE scores, I think it was a six. Um, oh, sorry to hear about that. So, um, but at the same time, um, working through it is, is, it's definitely been a really beneficial experience, but that uncertainty is still under, just boiling under, um, I had a mother who was incredibly, uh, in- incredibly unstable. Um, she was diagnosed bipolar, um, but just like I heard in some of the other conversations where bipolar has been brought up, um, it was really just a syndrome of asshole uh, because she was totally able to control it, um, except for when she was around me. So there was times I'd come home from school and she'd be singing and dancing around the house. And that was when I was most on edge because you never knew what was going to come. It was like a left hook out of nowhere. Could just, she could just fly off the handle. And other times she'd be hidden away in her room for, and I'd be fending for myself. Right. So... The and do you uh, I was going to say, do you think you're re-experiencing some of that right now? Yeah, definitely. The uncertainty is 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 terrifying. You know, it's where and am it's I going to get also, where am I going to get my mo- my my food from? You know, but it's also tied to resentment, isn't it? Because that's when your uh, voice started breaking up when I mentioned resentment. It's not just uncertainty. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure what you mean uh, with resentment. Yeah, just remind him of what the resentment that you meant. Oh, uh, becoming resentful of uh, the work that I'm doing, and ultimately becoming resentful of who I will become if I stay there. There, there are moments where I resent myself. If that makes any sense, I, I I I resent myself for making that decision to go to teachers' college. I resent myself for staying in it for as long as I've stayed in it already to this point. Um, I resent I resent not taking more risks when. I had more, oh, 
I can't say I had more ability because I could take a risk tomorrow. I could walk into that office and drop my resignation, slip and walk out, and that would be an insane risk. Right. And um, 10 years from now, if you can imagine yourself, let's say when you're 50, 40, 50, you're a lot older. What advice would you give to yourself from that point? Oh my God, uh, I've thought about this a lot. I would, I would go back to that that eighteen year old kid that was signing that university slip, and 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 signing my and signing the bank statements to to borrow that amount of money so that I could go to university. And I'd I'd shake them and say, a fine arts degree, really, a fine arts degree. That's what you're gonna. That's what you're gonna dig yourself into debt for. You know, I graduated with a fine arts degree and sixty thousand dollars of debt, and I couldn't be a musician. I couldn't just go and 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 be on tour because the the banks were calling me. I needed I needed a paycheck. Right. And what was your um, what was your monthly payout on oh, that? Shit, I was paying like six hundred a month minimum. Um, it, out 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 of the get go, and that was me negotiating that down. Um, in June, and that's what I get. That's like a mortgage, right? Like twenty twenty five years. I paid it off in June. I, I oh I, good okay. That's what I've been working in the summers, right? That I've been hyper focused right. to just get rid of all that debt. I'm I'm a hundred percent debt free. So. I I don't even, I don't own a house. I, I you know I don't own anything but a drum kit and a car. Um, so, yeah, Chris, it just kind of strikes me. You know, being a teacher, you talk about wanting to, you know, help that next generation and, you know, help help people that are at risk. It almost sounds to some degree like you want to be the person that uh, you said you wanted to be shaked. You know, go back in time and be that person that ended up shaking you convince you yeah. not to go down the road that you ultimately ended up going down yeah and maybe the only thing that's holding me in the position is that I can give some of those kids that shake you know and I can but well, there's got to be a better there's got to be a better way to, to do it this is taking the call in a slightly different direction but this was the first question I had for you um, when you and Steph started talking, because it's something I try and keep on my mind quite a bit. When it comes to you know helping people and helping these kids, where you know giving advice that kind of thing, where is your credibility derived from? I don't I don't have credibility when it comes down to it, because I haven't really you know other than. You know, trying to be a musician in my early twenties, you know, and, and having some relative success, I, I don't have the credibility of being able to show those kids. It's like, hey, listen, this is this is what I'm doing, and I'm going to go for it. You know, they don't they don't see that. They see me come in every single day and you know work my butt off with them, but. What really struck me, you know, when you started talking is I did not experience much happiness in your voice. 
And if you're not happy in a position where you're not happy, it's going to be even harder for people to listen to you. It's like I'm getting advice from someone who's ultimately not happy with where they are, not happy with what they're doing. That's going to be an immediate disconnect for people. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I've wondered. I've wondered sometimes where that disconnect was and yeah. I just uh, when I when I put that resignation letter in <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> Where, uh, what how am I going to move forward? I don't I don't No, but you're it's what Stein was saying and so if you want to jump back in but it's you're looking at it from the inside out, right? You're looking at it from what do I, what can I do? What do I want to do? Like a push, like a push technology. But if you really want to live a virtuous life, and I'm not saying you don't, I'm not saying you're not even living a virtuous life right now. But if you want to go to like the next level of virtue, it becomes what does the world need? Why, what, what is best for the world? Like, I mean, if you're a doctor in a time of plague, you don't wake up and say, well, what do I feel like doing today? Because the plague no, pulls you, right, to, to heal it, right? yeah. You make your decision based upon the world's needs, not on your merely personal preferences, if that makes any sense. And I'm not saying that, that you self-sacrifice and whatever and never sleep. And, but what I'm saying is that you're still looking at it from the inside out. Like, what do I do with my life? I think that the most valuable thing is to look at what does the world most need from me. Mm-hmm. Stoyan, you, you were talking about that with the, the sort of thousand years and, and the world thing. I wonder if you could go into that a bit more. Can't hear you, Stoyan. Are you muted? You should be able to hear me now. Yep, you're back. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I usually make um, it. It is uh, an intellectual exercise, admittedly, but it's very helpful. And uh, for the past couple of years, I've been taking this approach whenever I, I have to make a difficult decision. And um, what is what is really helpful is it. In, in the past, I've, made, I've had to, to make very difficult decisions. I also had to deal with a lot of uncertainty in my childhood, so I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with it. But mm-hmm. whenever you put uh, the perspective outside of yourself, there's a wonderful shift in which what becomes uncomfortable doesn't really matter that much. What is difficult... It's just an obstacle. What is, you're afraid of something? Well, so what? Many people have been afraid in the past that never stopped them. And whenever you're looking, as Steph was saying, from the inside out, you're always looking at uh, comfort and pleasure. And um, if you want to do, I mean... You can always take that approach, but if you want to do great things in your life and you're an intelligent guy and you have a lot, a lot to offer. So if you want to offer something to the world that is much bigger than what any musician in your environment has done, anyone, anyone probably in your city or state has done, you have to take a different perspective. You have to look from the outside and and that means that means just as Seth said, what does the world need? And because the world admittedly is pretty sickening as it is now, yeah. you just look into the future. You just look into the future. 
what would people yeah like what do you wish the world had told your parents what do you wish you the world had told your parents parents what do you think priests what do you wish priests had been talking about in the 19th century well peaceful parenting yeah isn't that what we all wish people had been talking about uh, 20 years ago 50 years ago 100 years ago a thousand years ago fuck socrates with his what is justice how about yeah you bald greasy bastard how about you talk about peaceful parenting that way, at least the hemlock is well-deserved and actually changes things. Yeah. Don't you wish that people had been talking about peaceful parenting when the Libertarian Party was founded, when they were talking about classical liberalism? Wealth of nations? No. <laughs> Wealth of parenting. Don't you wish that the Republic had been, Plato's Republic had been about peaceful parenting? Mm-hmm. And if that conversation had occurred in the past, then all of our lives would be very different now. Yeah. And at some point, we have to swallow that jagged little pill of peaceful parenting. At some point, people have just got to fucking talk about it and talk about it and talk about it until people get it, until it gets through their short-circuiting, traumatized, brain-spiking heads of defenses, and they get it. And if you're a teacher and you had to talk to kids, you know how to talk to young people, you got that experience and you get the issues. Well, we wish people had talked about it 50 years ago. So kids in the future, if they could talk now to us, they'd say, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. So I don't get beaten. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, when when you talk about the anarchist state and the ideal place, I get all of that. And when I hear people trying to work out how that is going to happen, the only answer and the only reason I really listen to your show is to get that peaceful parenting message. It It lights me up. It does light me up. Because everything else just the gate, everything else just the gate. It really is, but the the peaceful parenting piece. I don't see. I don't see peaceful parenting at this in in the school. When it comes to a percentage, I have a classroom of thirty, and I can immediately pick out the students who have got the peaceful parenting piece done at home, and we're talking one to two children out of a classroom of 30 and that disgusts me and good 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 so you've got you've got emotional energy to drive you disgust and hatred of evil is a fine jet ski for virtue yeah now i just have to learn how to fill that need with the skills that i have Yes, and look, I mean, just, just, to, just to be very clear, right? I mean, you don't have to leave the school. You, you're obviously doing some good in the school. I don't want to brush that over and brush that aside. This is coming up for you now because your debt's paid off, right? Yeah, 100%. Right, right. So, I mean, good job, great job. Um, but you can do good in the school. And you have the security. And, and so I'm not, you know, you've just 
had the stress of paying off your undergrad, 60 grand is a hell of a lot of money. You just have finished that. You know, it may not be the right time to launch into another stressful enterprise when you just finished off paying off your student loan, right? Yeah. It would be nice to have a but, year. Of so, so you know, piece. that's fine. It totally takes some time. This is not a moral issue. I, I, again, I want to be really clear on that. You, you can take the money from the state for the kids. It's not a moral issue. I've, I've been consistent from day one on this. When I was in business, I had government contracts. Now, I was a minarchist, and I tried to steer us towards stuff I thought the government would still do, like defense and so on. But nonetheless, it's not a moral issue. It's not like you're a bad person if you stay and you're a good person if you go. That, that's, I really want to be clear, at least from my standpoint. That's not, I wouldn't have been a bad person if I continued in my business career. Wouldn't have been, you know. Mm-hmm. But so, so it's not a moral issue. I really want to be clear on that because if it becomes a moral issue, you're screwed, right? Yeah, completely. Because morals just become like they become physics, right? If you're really interested in virtue, once something becomes a moral issue, there's no choice anymore, right? It's like you got it. It's a moral issue. You got it, right? Yeah. And so I really want to be clear. It's not a moral issue because then there's no there's no choice really involved. You just have to do the right thing if it's a moral issue, right? Yeah. So. So, so I think the important thing is to recognize that it's been stressful for you. You had a stressful childhood. Um, you got an arts degree, which is probably pretty relaxing. Musician, paying off your debt, dealing with bureaucracy, dealing with traumatized kids. So it may not be the right time in terms of just, you know, your personal resources, level of energy and so on. But when it comes to how do I do it, you know, that old quote, give a man a why he can bear almost any how. In other words, if you have a purpose, the methodology of how you get there will fig- you just do it, right? So, I mean, if you if you if your goal is to teach kids to think critically, then find innovative ways online or wherever to teach kids how to think critically. And um, you know, there, there's obviously you, I don't need to tell you and all how to do that or whatever. But no, not. that issue of what do I wish had been said to my parents just say that kind of stuff. I think that's, that's pretty important. Uh, and that's something that certainly guides me. And, and Stoyan and Mike, I really wanted to make sure you get your thoughts on this too. Do you have a something like that that guides you with this stuff that uh, this fine listener might benefit from? Oh, for, for me, it is the image of the future that we're trying to build. That ditto. is, mm-hmm. that is it. Definitely ditto on my end. Doing this for the future, not really doing it for the now. Yeah. You know what? I've really gained a crap ton from this conversation. To be completely honest, I'm probably going to go into work a little exhausted tomorrow because I think I'm going to be up for a little while rolling these over. And I, I really appreciate you taking all the time and all the work that you guys do with this FDR radio because you really do make a difference and you've made a difference in my life and the way that I approach children in my world. And you can continue to do that, of course, in the school environment and do good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And remember outside and yeah, definitely. Now, can I give you 
Can I give you a quote? Yeah, please. That may help. Mm-hmm. This is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish, little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Now, please understand, I'm not calling you a little clod of ailments and grievances. I think that's what we become in the long run, though, if we end up living from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who is, I'm going to read that again because it is important. This yeah. is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. That's George Bernard Shaw. And that is um, a sentence uh, dedicated at the beginning of Man and Superman, one of his plays, a comedy and a philosophy. Really? I'm going to read that. Wear yourself out in the pursuit of virtue and leave only the barest husk to be thrown in the grave. Yeah. Just be used up completely. Be emptied of words. Be emptied of power. Be emptied of dedication. Be emptied of challenge. Be emptied of courage. Spend it all. Because the only thing the graves get, let let only your skeleton be what the worms get. Nothing else. Have everything else spent to the last penny and let that last penny of spending be that which kills you (laughs) because you have nothing left to give. And that, I think, is a satisfying life. You know, there's there's this uh, thinking of doing a response to some theologian, Craig, who talks about uh, without God, there is no meaning to life. And it seems to me that this question of meaning is like this weird curse that you get if you don't believe in God. I'm going to curse you with a lack of meaning. It's like, well, that's just another kind of original sin made up bullshit that is supposed to make me give you money and allegiance and my children and their foreskins and blah, 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 right? But if you spend yourself deeply in the pursuit of virtue and if you have courage in the face of evil and if you encourage the virtuous and stymie the malevolent, You will never lack for meaning because the very question itself is selfish. I want meaning for my life. But if you are doing great good for the world, the question of whether your life has meaning never comes up. I mean, if you see a man drowning in the middle of a lake and you dive in and swim like a goddamn jet ski bound octopus to save him. I don't think at any point in that mad swim to save a life, do you ever stop, tread water and say, what's the meaning of my life? Yeah, right. (laughs) Nobody stops at that point. It's like in the middle of an orgasm. You (laughs) don't say, but does this orgasm has meaning? No, you're going, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's it. Meaning is what comes to fill you, sorry, a lack of meaning is what comes to fill you up 
when selfishness becomes unsustainable. And again, I'm not calling you, a, I'm, you are a dedicated, smart, wise, intelligent, compassionate guy. I mean, this, I, you know, I could reach deep into my bag of adjectives for an hour and still come up with more. And this is why I want to spend, and my concern, I want to spend time in this company. You are a great guy. I, mean, I really want to, and you've done more good in your teaching than most people will do in their lifetimes. I really appreciate that. But it's because of that potential, right? Yeah, it's because of your potential to, to, to really care and do good. That uh, And look, the last thing I'll say, I'll shut up and if Mike and Stone want to add more. But the last thing I'll say is that, you know, when you've been in combat, the thing you want to do most is avoid combat, yeah. right? It sucks. It it's loud. It's noisy. It's smelly. <laughs> Could lose arms, right? It's no good. But unfortunately, when war comes, you're just the best at it. Hmm. You're just the best at it. You're the most experienced. Yeah. I'd love to live in a world where I had a shitty childhood, but the world is a great place, so I can just leave all that stuff behind and don't have to go back to war, right? That's right. But the reality is there is a war. The war is everywhere. And like it or not, I'm really well trained for it. It's not like it's yay. It's like, huh, I'm the guy. And you're the guy. And Mike's the guy. And Stoyan's the guy. And listeners are the guy. Mm. And the women. We're just really well trained at it. My mother's madness was like a black and decker drill being permanently jammed forcefully towards and into my forehead. And I spent 15 goddamn years fighting that drill back from destroying my brain. So when a snake strikes at me, I don't even really think about it. I just catch it, twist its neck, and throw it aside. Now, it's not like I want to go out and hunt snakes. I had 15 years of those kinds of reflexes. Yeah. But it's 15 years of training, and the world is full of snakes. And the snakes aren't people, just irrationalities. Yes, no, I, I, I see the... I have sharpened my sword against the whetstone of family madness, low these many years, intense combat, endless training, and victory. And so if you are an expert swordsman, it is with regret you pull your blade. But when the war comes, if you leave, everybody else gets cut down. Because you're the only one who can fight that way. That's why I fight like hell, man, every day. Because of all the experience. Yeah. 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 So with a terrible childhood, horrible though it sounds, but with a terrible childhood that you have survived and flourished from, as you have, comes a deep knowledge of combating evil. And who else is going to win if not we battle-hardened warriors? We don't want the fight. We'd love to never put on the uniform again. But the fight is here. Yeah. Well, shit. I'm going to just keep brandishing my sword then. Well, I hope you keep us posted on, on how, it, how it's going. And um, Mike Stoyan, is there stuff that you wanted to, to add in? I'll just one thing I will say is I want to reiterate Steph's caution about uh, if you don't have the emotional bandwidth 
to make such a giant shift right now, please don't feel like you have to in some way, shape, or form. Don't be throwing around the have tos. You know, I know with me, there's been various points in my life where it's like I just did something really hard and I need to kind of take it easy for a little while, relax a bit, you know, not stress myself out with something. I think that's really, really important is not overloading your plate because uh, there's been various points in my life where I've done that and that doesn't turn out too well. So you know, if you're going to make a big change, if that's something that you want to do, make sure you set yourself up and you're in the best position to succeed and uh, have things turn out the way that you want them to. And that is going to involve you being as relaxed as possible, as not stressed as possible. If that means having extra cash in the bank account to tide you over for a bit, all that stuff's important and it definitely needs to be considered. So I just want to urge that caution that you don't overload yourself and you know set yourself up uh, in a disadvantageous situation for something that's pretty important. Yeah, no, I, I see that. But if you're going to rest, then oh, yeah. really rest, which means don't get yeah, into fights at absolutely. school, right? Like if, you, if you're going to rest, let's say you want to gather yourself and maybe you want to make a break or not. But if you're going to rest, you have to really rest, which means reduce friction, reduce conflict, and just really let yourself have the chance to relax and unwind before you do whatever's next. That would, you know, sorry, Stein, did you want to? Or just one last thing in? you wanted to add is really embrace that inner warrior because he got you through a war when you were young. And he's yeah. still in there. Don't let go of him. That is yeah. that is all I wanted to add. That's amazing advice, and I'm really looking forward to listening back to this to to digest it further because it's going to take some time. And I really, really do appreciate all of, all three of you taking as much time, and the listeners taking all this time to to have this chat too. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think as everyone knows, I get to live with the best people in the world and I get to work with the best people in the world. So it's a, a real honor and a privilege. And remember, it's your donations that make all of this possible. So fdrurl.com slash donate to help out the show. There is literally no limit to the amount that we can grow. There is nothing that we cannot get done in this world. We're only bounded by your dedication, devotion and generosity. Um, you know, we're we're making our sacrifices here uh, at Free Domain Radio. You know, Mike uh, gave up um, significant income of two months off a year and job security and benefits. And Stoyan gave up six figures. And uh, I, uh, I don't know. What do I do? Um, sometimes. No, that's not it. Um, we'll do another show on that. But um, we, we're all making our sacrifices here. Uh, and again, when I talk about supporting the show, supporting this conversation, supporting the spread of philosophy, I'm not talking about money. It helps. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's an important part of what we do. But sharing the show, um, uh, giving people the books, they're all free. Just just go making – recut the show up. But people always write to us and, and they say, oh, you should you should cut this part out of the show you know, and set it to animation. It's like, then do it. <laughs> do it. Slice and dice us up like crazy. Just tell us where it is so we can – Publish it back on our own channel and get you some eyeballs. You know, rework the materials. Fantastic. Try not to put in uh, listener identifiable information in a doxing fashion and we won't have any problems. But um, just uh, do, do the things. You want to set this, this crap to a beat and, and put dancing penguins in. Do it. Do what is, uh, is in you creatively. If you don't have money and you've got time and you've got the creative juice, do that stuff doesn't even have to be the show. Whatever you're passionate about, get behind that shit and push it. Uh, you know, Mormonism went from 
one crazy guy to quite a few crazy guys all ordering magic underpants over the internet. That's just because guy got behind those ideas and pushed them. Christians broke with their Jewish parents. And if you've ever tried to break with a Jewish mother, you know it's not a small thing to follow this crazy bearded blonde, not really blonde, probably more <laughs> black guy uh, into the desert. They faced down lions, got their legs eaten off and shit like that. Nobody's saying you got to go into the Colosseum with a man-eating lion to spread philosophy, but get behind what you care about and push that shit into the world, whether it's giving us money, whether it's taking time to spread the word, whether it's having conversations with people, whether it's sharing books, whether it's you name it. Get behind this stuff. It does not move without you. There's only three of us here. We can't do it all. It needs you to push it. So fdrurl.com slash donate. I guarantee you, we've been growing like crazy. There's no ceiling to the need the world has for philosophy. There's no possible way, no matter how big we grow, we can make enough blue pills to break the matrix of mankind in our lifetimes. But we can get a hell of a long way there. And how far we go is entirely up to you and your generosity. Do not be passive in the war for virtue. Thank you, everybody, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful week. I'm sorry to the people we didn't get to. Love you all. We will talk to you on Saturday.